0: Uh.
1: Sometimes I gotta get away, get away. Wake up at dawn with the main bang, I don't do. sublime. i tell her straight away, straight away. Deep go deeper than the 808, boom, boom. Could smell like chitter lane, chitter chat with a little friend on my nigga lane. Pitta pat, your little brakes with the bigger ring. i not never entertain on my soul. I'm allergic to negativity, I truly got you. Sexy when you met the at you. Puckin' like a pissed till I get sound. Take a little pissed out in the mid sound. poppin', she a wheel on the screw. We can do whatever you wanna do. Runnin' off fumes and a few grooves in the room.
2: Black swine born on black juke But a group, black wing swarm, and a white right sh on the roof. Baby, come fly with me. Let's Uchi Riley in the Mazaratis. Worst time, effect quality. Like the silk pillows down on the
1: bed for your head. You a fat. I'm a dog. Treat me up on the mansion. Silk pillows keep my head. Sit there so big it is december 14th 2017
2: and the psychology is dead i'm your host quentin moody and this is sort of i guess a surprise episode to some people as um if you're listening to this The last part of the 2017 Wrestlers of the the Year podcast should be out by now. And I did mention that I would be doing another podcast shortly about aces, top guys, and uh, golden boys in professional wrestling. What these things mean. What I think of them. And I followed through on my promise. And with me, I have of Eastern Lariat, uh, of Lucha Talk. He does so many things that I just like forget them sometimes. Pretty much the king of MLW, Mr. Dylan Harris. Dylan, how are you?
3: Man, Quentin, the king of MLW. I appreciate that label so much. I have so many nicknames as well. That's another thing I, I'm very well known for. So I'm going to add that onto the list. In between Sky Blue Hot-Blooded Young Man and Podcast Tuxedo Mask. <laughs> now, the king, the king of MLW is reigning supreme on my marquee but so i'm so happy to be on man i'm really looking forward to the show i'm a huge fan of the show and all the different topics i think the last time i was on we recorded earlier this year for sure i think it was in february we we got together for a lucha show i was one of many guests but now it's just me and you man so i'm i'm really happy to be doing here uh here doing the show with
2: you right we get some one-on-one time uh this go around but I wanted to have you on because I think you're one of the more intelligent and well-spoken people. Um, well-reasoned people when it comes to matters, you don't really lean too far either way on something. So for a discussion about top guys, aces, golden boys, people do get really passionate sometimes because they quote unquote, like hate something shoved down their throats or things along those lines. And those complaints happen fairly often, whether it be new Japan, WWE, uh, TNA, any kind of wrestling, people will always like kind of complain about a top guy. So I think we're both kind of like down the middle when it comes to something like this, so I think you were the perfect guy to bring on for this.
3: Yeah, I'm, I, could, I definitely think what you said is completely accurate about me in terms of that sort of thing because I think for me personally as a fan, whether even as growing up as a kid or when I went as a teenager to liking it now, I've always A lot of my favorite guys are more of the mid-card and undercard people that I personally enjoy watching the most. So winning and losing and being the ace and winning titles is not really the main focus of what I look for as a fan. So to me, it's not that much of something that really makes me passionate in terms of, oh, somebody's pushed somebody's hated, or somebody uh, needs more, because to me, a lot of my favorites don't win as much as I would like anyway, so I've just kind of come to accept it, I I would say. But I definitely do think there's a lot to talk about, and it's a great discussion point to have, because I think there's definitely cases where you could say someone has been pushed too much or or doesn't quite fit the role they're given on a given show in a given promotion. So I think this is going to be a really great show.
2: And I titled this The Art of Stardom because really this just focuses on the top people on the top of a card in a wrestling promotion on a wrestling TV show. Whatever. It's the people that are positioned to be the most important. And the reason why I did this is because the term the terms aces, top guys, golden boys get all used similarly when these terms aren't mutually exclusive. What I mean by that is someone can be an ace and be a golden boy, but you don't have to be a golden boy to like become an ace. You can <laughs> be a top guy and an ace because those things sort of go hand in hand. But a top guy isn't always the ace. If you get what I mean, so I'm kind of here to distinguish what each of these things mean. Give examples of what I think of who I think qualify in each term, and kind of unpack like why do wrestling fans oftentimes talk badly about people in these? Um, specifically, Golden Boy gets thrown around a lot to like discredit somebody and say they don't deserve to be at the top or to have like this kind of push or success. So I'm here to see mainly where do other people stand on um, the use of these terms? Where can we go from here to like have a bit more um, uh, clearer lines on what these terms actually
3: mean and how we should. Do? Yeah. I definitely think when you look at it, something like that, it's not just in in wrestling specifically. I think that term specifically the golden boy it is used in all kinds of forms mm-hmm. of entertainment and particularly under other sports as well. You look at someone in football like Tom Brady, yeah. Let's, uh, start, like-
2: let's just unpack like the term yeah. golden boy first. Uh, yeah, this is a term that goes beyond professional wrestling, um, goes into other sports, uh, other media like film or video games or things like that. Pretty much, it's someone like hand picked, I think, from like in early stage of their career to like be the top guy or like the next person on top um a prodigy so to speak uh so when you say tom brady tom brady is now like super famous and everybody worships him and all this stuff but tom brady came into the league obviously super late round draft pick wasn't a starter all that stuff and then eventually got those like things and got those uh accomplishments and accolades and all the um, buzz that goes along with that but that was not him when he came in as opposed to like um peyton or someone like that being like number one overall yeah like maybe like
3: just to switch it to basketball we're covering the whole spectrum of sports here but like a lebron james was looked at even in high school as the next jordan a lot of people were you know making those comparisons and he came out got number one pick got all of these props and things of that nature.
2: And like does, you yeah, and like he deserves them yeah. and then you yeah. can throw in like a Steph Curry who like was a lottery pick still, but nobody expected like Steph Curry to like be on the level that he is now in terms of output and, like star power that he has now. And like I can't call Steph Curry a golden boy. Want a he, golden boy because he didn't have all that handed to him.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know Steph... He went to a very small school, too, in college, so he came totally from, <laughs> you, you know, obscurity to rising up the ranks to this high, high-end draft pick that you couldn't even, uh, nobody could have predicted when he came out of high school. He, he was not a five-star recruit or anything like that. He just kind of worked his way up. He was a hard-luck kind of person, right? and someone that earned his way to the top. And those are just all great examples of what you were talking about in wrestling, where some people, and we'll talk about some people that could be considered Golden Boys by a lot of fans, perhaps critics, but don't really fit that mold when you look at their entire careers and their beginnings.
2: So, I want to start off by asking, what exactly do you remember being your first time recognizing that somebody was important in wrestling, when you're watching anything on TV, whether... um, It'd be your beginnings. I know you are watching a lot of uh, Lucha when you were younger. Anytime when someone just like popped off, like, okay, this is a big deal. I should be paying attention.
3: Yeah, to me, I remember watching, I'm going to take you way back, not even Lucha. That was probably 10 years after what I'm about to see. But when I, I was just a little, little kid, probably about two, three, four years old, the main way I watched wrestling, because Raw back then was on you know, it's on a little later at night here. I'm in the Central Time Zone, so I probably wasn't even allowed to stay up that late. I was probably in bed by the time Raw was halfway over. But I knew wrestling from watching old VHS tapes, and my favorite one, and I think the first moment I could say was uh, the point where I could say, "Hey, this guy," you know, "I have to, to look at him." I think would be WrestleMania Nine when Hulk Hogan came in and defended America versus Yokozuna. <laughs> and in hindsight, I th- I can see now that it was a complete dick move to steal from Bret Hart, the far far superior wrestler. But as a child, I thought, whoa, America, Hulk Hogan, He's the- he beat Yokozuna, this huge, indestructible guy. Nobody can beat Yokozuna, but Hulk Hogan can. That's what made me think of him as an important guy. And another moment, I think, that also stands out, I think I have two moments, and this is the second one, was... When in WrestleMania 12, after at this point I was starting to watch wrestling live, so I, I remember watching this live. When Shawn Michaels came out on the zip line and won the world title in this epic Iron Man match, uh, with overtime as well, when he won the title, Boyhood Dream and all that, the fireworks went off after that. That, to me, signified someone that I have to pay attention to. I, I think those two moments for me really stand out as when I... Took note of someone in particular as a kid to say, Hey, this guy is the face of wrestling to me.
2: For me, I don't really have a specific moment in which I realized someone was supposed to be important or being presented as important. It kind of goes back to like early 2000 Triple H, honestly, being about four, five, six years old and being in the middle of that reign of terror in hindsight. But yes, looking at. His lighting, the way he walked, the way he dressed, the way commentary would talk about him when he came out. Like, they would do everything they could to let you know that Triple H was supposed to be the best. Whether it be, like, he's, like, the most menacing bad guy, the smartest guy in the locker room, the toughest guy in the locker room, whatever. They would tell you anything to let you know that, like, Triple H was the top guy. So... I think in the middle of that run is the first time when I realized there was like a hierarchy in that certain people are being positioned as the best and other people can be very good, but there are like, there is a hierarchy, there's levels to everything that's going on on the show.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point on your part because that run, I remember that run specifically, and in that run, a match that sticks out to me is one of my favorite wrestlers, even as a child. It really, It's really funny. If you look at my favorite wrestler list as a child, it totally matches up with what I would become later in life in terms of the kind of fan I am. But one of my favorite wrestlers was Takamichi Noku. And <laughs> I loved his wrestling and the high-flying things he did and how his name sound like, sounded like Tonka Trucks I used to play with. Um, but when he faced Triple H in his match for the world title, uh, I was so... Like, mesmerized by that, because to me, Taka was always somebody that never really won a whole lot. And here he was getting this title shot against Triple H. And that that really set up when he... And also a moment, too, when he had the match with Chris Jericho during that title reign, where Jericho won the title, but they immediately reversed it. Uh, I totally could sense what you were talking about in terms of him being atop of the hierarchy of WWF at that moment in time.
2: So, now I want to get into... What do we think of top guy, ace, golden boy as separate mm-hmm. terms, completely separate? And ent- So I want to get into our definitions for each one of these things. So Dylan, if you want to uh, lead us off here, what exactly would you call a top guy?
3: Okay, so to me, I think top guys have two different forms, but ultimately serve purposes that are not the ace i think the ace is a totally different thing and a golden boy is a totally different thing from a top guy as well i think the first definition of a top guy that i can think of is someone that i think first of all he has to be protected in booking to a certain extent i think booking plays a part in all three of these terms in its own way but i think he has to be protected to a certain extent respected by fans as well as proven capable of main eventing the company even as its champion for decent periods of time, but is not the main star of the company that is recognized as its face and MVP, either due to, and that could be for one of many reasons, it could be to, maybe he's just not as good in the ring as the ace or some other people, or he lacks a personality that connects with the fans that he doesn't have. Maybe it's even an inability to represent the company outside the ring, uh, because I think that does play a large part in what the ace is, and I'll get into. Or, like I said, even if it's just the lack of faith of the bookers of the promotion that he's not there. A top guy to me can be really successful, but that's different than the leader and representative of what a company is to me. Uh, and the other version of a top guy that I have is oh, also to add on to that, I think a top guy, as an addendum to that, that can also be an ace that they tried, but flamed out, and, and either failed or naturally slid down back to card. But can be good enough, you know, to not flame out entirely. And to me, the other version of a top guy that I think is worth noting is someone that... Someone who has a, a huge amount of popularity, often with a kind of legacy attached to him of some sort, but lacks the requirements of being the ace or a top guy. Or sometimes it's simply just not not around enough, or he just doesn't fit the mold of what you can do with him, you know. But at the same way, I think a top star can be the biggest win another wrestler could have on the roster, even more or as important as beating the ace. Right. So that to me is what I think of when thinking of top guys. Those are, those are the kind of traits I think.
2: And to go along with what your second definition was, names like that that could go along with like being the biggest scalp someone on your roster could take without being like the tippy top guy on the roster is like, your Brock Lesnar, your Undertaker, your Rocks, your Atlantis—think guys like that who aren't working full-time schedules, but whenever they do show up, they can put over somebody. Granted, in WWE, they're not usually, but still, they could be—they could be used in that way to elevate a new star and you know establish somebody as being like the new top act in a company.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with all of those points. I think. Really, one of the first examples of that version would be Antonio Inoki later on in his career after Mm -hmm. he had been the ace and everything. But even still, without being the ace or the world champion all the time, beating him was if you beat him, you knew you were, you know, the real deal in the company. And I think other examples, even modern examples, someone like Marufuji and Noah now is not or the top guy in any means, but he wrestles all over the place, represents Noah well. And if you beat him, that means as much as beating Eddie Edwards or Nakajima. And in Noah, they also have a, a long example of that with Misawa, really. If you look at it, he wasn't the champion a lot in the mid-2000s. But still, when it came time to that match with Kawada, he was the main event of their, their one of their biggest shows ever. And beating him would mean so much, even more than beating a champion, whether it's Marafuji or Morishima. I, I think those kind of top guys can be there. Do you agree with my first opinion, Quinn, of the top guy that it's someone that just is lacking something to be the ace, or it could be any number of reasons, even just bad booking, but they could still be successful? Mm. Do you you think that's fair?
2: Yeah, it's definitely fair. Uh, I think a lot of us as wrestling fans kind of get caught up when not everybody is the guy, because everyone knows there's only so much room at the top, at the top of the card, In big-time programs, big-time feuds. So that's only going to go to a handful of people. And these people are still put in uh, important, interesting stories or matches. They're just not the person on the programming. And oftentimes it is somebody that got pushed really hard initially and then slid back down the card. But it can't just be somebody that rose up meteorically and Mm -hmm. they weren't realistically going to become like the ace were a sole top star of a company, but they got so popular that they rose through the mid-card and you couldn't deny them like a CM mm. Punk or a Daniel Bryan.
3: Totally. I totally agree with you. And Daniel Bryan specifically, he's someone that pretty much entirely due to crowd reaction overcame the negative viewpoint on him by the booking and was able to rise up through the card and really get his shot. He did was able to win the title. And it was a huge moment for everyone. And if you think about it, Brian, who knows what he could have been if he just had that added element. He could have been the ace realistically. And, you know, someone like that is a great example. CM Punk as well. He had one of the hottest angles in the company with the pipe bomb. And, but despite that, the booking just never got behind him to that level to make him the true ace. And I think those are two good examples of someone that's just missing the behind-the-scenes powers that be behind them. That, that really hurts. But uh, also sometimes it could be someone that, like you said, just kind of fits a role in a company. And I think someone like that would be Kawada in All Japan in the 90s. You know, when it comes to the ace, there can only be one ace at a time, really. But someone has to be the ace's rival, too. And he exemplified that role perfectly. And despite never being the ace, he's still revered as a true legend, one of the greatest of all time, both in Japan and abroad. So I don't think top guy necessarily is a negative comment at all. But I, I just think that there are reasons and that it could be one of many reasons that I laid out. Or he, like I said, he just came along at the wrong time and the ace was there and the booking loved him too much to really change it. You know, so there are a lot of reasons someone could be a top guy, but it's not a bad thing entirely.
2: It's not a bad thing. Like whenever people bash Hiroki Goto and guys like Goshi Ozaki all the time for, you know, Goto having multiple failed chances at the IWGP title, Goshi Ozaki not working out for a number of reasons, and that kind of translates into like the whole perception of a guy where that turns into oh this guy is a failure in general because he was never the top guy, the company doesn't believe in him yada yada yada. And not everybody is going to be that. Just because you get a push doesn't like be in the Tokyo Dome. Like it doesn't have to be that way. So Hiroki Goto can still be a good wrestler, can still be a really good wrestler. But he serves a purpose, serves a role, and that role just isn't one of those tippy top names. He's still respected. Beating Hiroki Goto still means something. That's why, mm-hmm. like you know, you're giving, uh, like a Zack Saber Junior his first like, official title match in New Japan, he's facing Hiroki Goto. I mean, not official. like For a New Japan title, he's facing Hiroki Goto for the Never Belt. And that does a good job establishing him as a tough heavyweight that can go in there and face like these big, strong dudes. He doesn't have to go in there and face Okada off the bat to establish himself. He can work his way and face a Goto who's respected enough.
3: That's totally true. And those two are both very different, but also similar in their perceptions. But, you know, I think that's two cases that are totally true. What you said was totally true, but their reasons are different because Go was able to get his chance to be an ace. And for whatever reasons, you could point to any reasons why it didn't really work, but he was someone that they pushed and pushed and tried with. Noah, he was their first champion after Misawa died. And maybe that was... A part of the reason why he failed the first time, he just, you know, that was just too much. He was in too much of a bad situation. The next time we saw it with All Japan, after they left Noah, you know, to form Burning and everything, but it still didn't work. So for some reason, he was missing something to the fans there, and you could say that. And Goto, he's a, a case of someone who, he seemed like he could have been an ace. A lot of people, if you go back and look at it, around 2007, He had this huge match with Tanahashi
1: Mm.
3: that everybody impressed. It was one of the matches of the year. He ended up surprised. It's
2: a fantastic match.
3: Yeah, totally. That was their very first match in 2007. Not their very first match, but the, uh, the match that really made Goto. And that led to him winning the G1 in 2008. And at that time, he was the second in command to a stable called Rise that was led by Shitsuke Nakamura. And nobody really thought Goto would win that year, but he did, and it felt like he was the next guy. But they kept doing exactly what you said, and that became what he's known for. That he loses big title matches over and over and over again. And that just kind of took away his luster, you know? He just could never overcome that. And now, uh, you know, he probably never will be able to overcome it. But, but that said, due to his performance and due to his stature, and despite all that, he's still protected reasonably somewhat. He's not just like, you know, someone that anybody can get beat, you know, can beat like a drum. He's someone that is protected. He, like you said, he totally means something to beat in the company. And he's a solid top star that can also be, if you're in a situation where you're at a B pay per view or B big show and you need a title challenger for the aces like Okada, Tanahashi, Naito, and these others, Goto's a perfect person to slide in that can do good the attendance will be good with him it's not going to tank anything but it's a good win for your champion you know Mm -hmm. and he's someone that's very invaluable to have kind of like a a great utility player on the roster goto isn't and go fills a similar role even though their paths to get here were different he plays a similar role we just saw that in the global league final he was the one that was picked to put over keno and last year goto was the one that was picked to put over kenny omega before his title defense, so I, I before his title's challenge. So I think that's a, a great, really, comparison that you just made there. And I think both are great examples of two different kinds of paths you can go, but still can be valuable top guys to the company.
2: Now, let's get into what exactly you would call a
3: golden Yes. A golden boy, to me, I think is someone that, and we, we went on this a little bit with the sports theme, I think. When you look at it, the golden boy is used with people that it doesn't necessarily fit. And it's someone that, to me, he can occasionally be an ace, but he doesn't have to be. You, you know, occasionally an ace just kind of catches on naturally. Uh, but to me, the Golden Boy is someone that's very protected early on, heavily pushed, and arguably the most protected member of the roster with the intention. I think this is the most important part of a Golden Boy. The Booker, whatever they do with them, their intention all the way is to make them the true ace and essentially all you know a lot of aces can be considered early on they get picked out but sometimes it just happens naturally and a golden boy to me has to be protected scoped out early on as the next ace and usually it's someone like i said you could talk about protection but actually i was just thinking of this when we were we were going over this on the pre-show there was a company called big mouth loud that was built specifically for shibata to be the ace but Instead of pushing him and protecting him, he he lost a lot, even to Taru. <laughs> and uh, it's no wonder with that kind of opportunity that the company only lasted seven shows. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, sometimes a golden boy can be the reason an ace fails, too. If you are a golden boy and they go too strong, he's missing one of the factors that I mentioned earlier. Or... If the crowd catches on and feels they aren't worthy, or maybe even if they would otherwise like them, but feel like the company is kind of force feeding them, you know, and they may just reject it based on the feeling they're being told what to do. And I think that's something a lot of fans, especially nowadays, before it wasn't as big of a problem, but I think nowadays everyone wants to be, you know, I I don't want to say in a demeaning form, but everyone wants to be a smart fan for the company nobody wants to get tricked or feel like they're lying to and i I think that's fair in a lot of ways when it comes to fans but i think that's really what a golden boy is to me when i think i think it's just someone really the booker has every intention of making the ace and they will do whatever they feel is necessary to get there
2: to me to add on to that and you mentioned it somewhat like they are scoped very early on to be Mm -hmm. that guy they're scoped very early on with the intention of you know, coming straight out of high school or back, or college with that with whatever athletic background they have, they have no training yet. And just looking at them from an, an an aesthetic standpoint, um, a potential standpoint of hmm, this person seems like someone we can build our company around. And you have nothing else to go off of besides the little bit of training and whatever like aesthetic uh makeup they have. Right. And that would be like uh Brock Lesnar, you know. Huge yeah. NCAA heavyweight champion, unique look. Um, WWE is all over him. Uh, excuse me. So by the time they bring him to the main roster, he's presented as this big, unstoppable force. And in his first few months, he's winning King of the Ring, beating Hulk Hogan, main eventing SummerSlam, and beating The Rock all in his rookie year. And that is like the yep. prime definition. And go, and keep in mind, when we say Golden Boy, we're not saying that like this person is like, always undeserving of it some people live yeah. up to the status and they go up there and like show that they should be taken seriously on that level but you are being handed opportunities at a very very young stage in your career that a lot of people aren't really getting and when people say golden boy they usually apply it to like anybody that gets a really hard put um yeah. some people will say okada is a golden boy some people will say john cena is a to me Either of those guys are Golden Boy. Okada was wrestling three or four years before he even got into the New Japan system, working in Mexico, working in the Toriyama system under Ultimo Dragon, um, some, Negro, some Negro Navarro training too. So to me, if someone started that young and they were working their way up, no one really knew what to expect from them, and eventually he gets in a bigger company and they take notice of him, it's not like he came straight out of high school or college and they were like, okay, yeah, this is the guy. He just happened to like catch the right eye going to a training camp and then the rest is history. Now we don't know exactly what led to him being pushed, why he got pushed so hard. Cause to be fair, his last match before his excursion is against Tanahashi in a singles match, for Christ's sake. But like mm-hmm. you can like you can look at Okada's career and then say, all right, he just seems like he just caught the right attention or some people saw something in him. But it wasn't like they saw it as soon as he came out of high school or college with no athletic background. He already was wrestling. So he already had like a step ahead of a lot of the Young Lions there.
3: Yeah, yeah. I can totally see what you're saying. Uh, I would say, and I'm just going to play, uh, uh, I don't advocate for the devil. But <laughs> I will I, I will advocate... Uh, Okada's advocate, I will, I will be here, but uh, do you think that it's possible for a golden boy to, you, what you mentioned I think is a completely factual statement, everything you said, do you think it's possible that a golden boy can also be someone that suddenly gets pushed not necessarily for for a, you, you know, not just necessarily because they earned their push or anything like that, but for a specific reason, and mm-hmm. someone that I think like that is Jinder Mahal. Right. Someone who clearly gets pushed. They're determined for it so much that they will overlook anything that shows you that maybe it's not the best idea, but they have a clear goal in mind for India and to, and to you know get, get that kind of thing, and they would push him no matter what. Do you think that that kind of person could be considered a golden boy or just a a favorite of management?
2: Uh, Yeah, to some extent, but then you'd also have to consider that What was Jinder Mahal doing before that? Eating shit on the like, you know, like opening match or not even making the main, like pay per view or raw and working main event superstars. So. Exactly. And if he really was a golden boy, then don't you think that when they signed, they would have like immediately started like pushing him and working. And granted, like when they first bring Jinder Mahal up, they aren't like treating him badly, but he's by no means like a like highly pushed star when he comes up that way. He gets like the typical brought up to the main roster, go undefeated for a few months, maybe two or maybe two, maybe three kind of run, and then mm-hmm. he's like bottom of the barrel. So, that is a three. Mm-hmm. So it's like, where can you call him a good boy? Now, granted, um, pushing somebody for a specific reason, you can say that in the Bushy Road era, um, and they're going for a more idol-based um, mm-hmm. appearance and top guys... That Okada fits that. But again, I'm saying it that it's like, yeah. yeah, he fits it. Yeah, you can say he's a pretty boy, even though I think that's kind of a stretch. Um, I think that he just happened to just work too much to call him a golden. Same reason why I couldn't call John Cena that. John mm-hmm. Cena was never initially, um, slated to be the top guy in WWE. Now you can yep. say that when Okada was, but went on an excursion that they obviously had plans for him, but John Cena, there was no semblance that he would be like the top guy because you got to keep in mind, he's in a class with other people. I would call golden boys, Brock Lesnar right. and Randy Orton. And those are guys yeah. that were mentioned on commentary as being these next big stars. Can't miss. If you would build a sports entertainer from the ground up, it would look like these guys kind of stuff. Yeah. And John Cena was just, he's determined. He's tough. He always gives it his all. and, all that good like young lion fiery babyface stuff but he was losing a lot and he was getting put with veterans to have really fun matches on tv but he's not really being protected he's more getting over in losses compared to someone like Brock Lesnar who's steamrolling, he's who's steamrolling like complete veterans on the roster and he's less than a year or two interprofessional.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. Orton was someone I I thought of immediately when you said Golden Boy, and I think he fits too. I I think my point on gender, and you could say the same thing about about Okada, is you could say a Golden Boy is different than someone who becomes a management favorite, Mm -hmm. you know, someone that they're going to push no matter what. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, I think that's what a lot of people really mean when they say, say Golden Boy someone that just gets pushed hard, like you said, but, but for a specific, a specific reason that they want them to be that big thing. But Orton, uh, I completely agree with you. Orton and Lesnar were two people I had as well. I think Roman Reigns is a, another person that was clearly pegged early on that they saw something in him. And when he first debuted as the Shield, you notice he got a lot more protection than the other two members. And I think even back then, they, they clearly had plans for him to be John Cena's successor uh, as, as an ace. Uh, not necessarily Golden Boy, but as an, as an ace. And I think uh, it hasn't quite worked yet, but I think they still really feel that a way about him. And I think they chose that for him very early on, even out of college as he was a, a collegiate football player at Georgia Tech. Uh, so I think they really saw it back then. I, obviously, I think, too, a lot of times with Golden Boy, and I think, besides obviously Brock Lesnar is a freak of nature in so many ways, but I think a familiar familial connection really helps with, with someone like Roman Reigns and Orton both. Uh, I, I think that really helps a lot, in American wrestling, at least. And uh, obviously, in Japanese wrestling, I think real sports backgrounds help. You talked about Jumbo earlier. Uh, Tomoyuki Oka is someone now that we've heard about in New Japan as someone that they have huge plans for in the future obviously we haven't seen that play out yet but it's someone that if he becomes a huge star and they push him to death we know that they had it in mind all along you know so i i think those kind of guys i think you you make a really good point i think a lot of people are just kind of saying the same thing but in a different way you, you know i think a golden boy is more like what you said i think it's someone that has to be they have to know it right away, early on, that they're going to be pushing them. Uh, to, and they want them to be the ace early on, even without any real reason besides just a look or a gut feeling or they like him or whatever. Uh, I think you have to really have that kind of early connection with management and booking to become a golden boy in wrestling.
2: To go back to Roman Reigns, um, yeah. I was in a conversation a few months ago. And one of the things that I had said it was like about Roman Reigns crowd reaction. You know, you can't go the last like three years in wrestling without talking about Roman Reigns and his like perception when it comes to fans. But one thing that got mentioned is how is Roman Reigns any different than John Cena? And I was kind of taken aback that someone would even like consider saying that because mm-hmm. the stories of Roman Reigns. And John Cena are completely. John Cena. John Cena has no family background in WWE. He's not a second generation, third generation wrestler. He didn't have family working in WWE. He went to a wrestling school in California for like a year or two. Worked there, and then eventually, (laughs) and then eventually got to developmental. Um, was clearly like the fourth, maybe, maybe, maybe fifth. Uh, most pegged guy out of his developmental class and then eventually he gets to the main roster and he's losing a lot they turn him heel he's kind of a joke but he makes that character work and then gradually everything about cena starts to form and people can't get enough of him and he becomes what the company wanted he's a model employee so they start to see that later on when people like randy orton and brock lesnar can't exactly carry the load that john cena right. is there To be the guy that represents the company. And that's what an ace is. So he's a guy Mm -hmm. that wasn't pegged for that. And then became an ace. Remember, Ray's on the other hand. And this isn't, when I say this, this isn't a bad thing. It's not bad that you have family. It's not bad that people see potential in you. That's not a bad thing. But when we're talking about fans and wrestling and how fans and wrestling take things, they kind of see these things as negatives. So he comes in multi-generation lineage in the WWE. Um, distant relatives with high profile stars in the company. They mention it frequently when they talk about him, when they debut him, they don't debut him as some like well-meaning fired up rookie. They debut him in the most dominant faction in WWE history. They debut him in the shield, something that's going to go down as one of the best acts in WWE ever. They had great matches and you could always tell that back then Roman Reigns was positioned differently than the rest of the group. He wasn't like the leader up until like the end of it. But when you look at the early stages, when Dean Ambrose was doing the talking, Roman Reigns was the one picking up a lot of the wins. Yep. Roman Reigns in their mat, Roman Reigns, when they pick up their first loss, um, not their first loss, but when they start yeah. to like crumble and you can tell the shield's falling apart, um, Roman Reigns is getting the solo beat down and they have an extended segment on him where he's fighting everybody off. And he is making this like superhero esque like comeback before he gets beat down. When the skill field f- evolution, he's being he's being singled out as the person that Triple H and everybody else wants to destroy because he has all this potential. Then 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 we get to the single stuff, and you know people saw the writing on the wall. And this mm-hmm. and it doesn't help that it came at the same time as Daniel Bryan and that stuff going on, mixing up real life and the on screen. It doesn't help that Roman Reigns was coming back from injury when all of that stuff was really starting to blow up. Yeah, and he just became like the face of that. But Roman Reigns, it was clear. The writing was on the wall about what they were going to do with him. And it was clear back in 2012, and then by tw- late 2014, people knew what was up and they weren't ready for it. They weren't having it. They didn't want it. And you can say whatever you want about he's not over now, he's over now. He gets a reaction, but it, like whatever. Whatever you want to say about it, he's still he's still presented as the top guy. That's not going to change for a very long time. But Roman Reigns, by all definitions and
3: standards, is a golden boy. Yep, I completely agree. And you want to talk about that. There was also a time where it seemed like it seemed like it was working, how they were positioning him. I remember the Royal Rumble, where he was the last man eliminated by Batista, and everyone wanted him to win instead of Batista. Um, but when you look at it, how they went about it i think they went about him really wrong uh, but no matter how you feel about how they pushed him necessarily i don't think you can really argue that he wasn't pegged for success from the start and i think that's what uh, a golden boy is and that's really what we're getting at you know for all the reasons that you mentioned i think he's a prototypical golden boy by the definition that's that we've laid out and it, it and like you said too Personally, I'm a fan of Roman Reigns. Mm -hmm. I think he's a a really good wrestler, actually. On On that roster, he's actually one of my favorite people in the WWE. Not that I'm a huge fan of the company, but he's one of the ones I do like. And so to say all that stuff doesn't necessarily change what I feel about a performer. It's just more that I can totally see that. I think that's a case that the crowd caught on. And as I said at the beginning of all this, I really feel like they felt like Cheering for Roman Reigns is what they were being told to do in a lot of the crowd's mind. And they rejected it for that reason. And they, and Roman Reigns also, um, as a Golden Boy, he also, you know, he, he just didn't do himself any favors in a, in a lot of ways. But that, that's a whole other discussion. But more importantly, he, he definitely fits the prototype of a Golden Boy. And I think Orton is, is another great great point of that. And we've seen guys in the past, too. I mentioned that even someone that really failed and sucked, like I mentioned to to you off the air, but Eric Watts in WCW was the Booker's son, someone that was pegged for success early on, and it was just never going to work, you know? And obviously his skill set is a big part of that, but he was clearly positioned as someone they felt, or the Booker at the time felt, obviously, could be the next big star for them, and they were going to do what they could to give him every opportunity possible. And a lot of people don't get those opportunities that Eric Watts, Randy Orton, Roman Reigns... Obviously, Roman Reigns is a lot better than Eric Watts. <laughs> but I think both people uh, have really... have that familial connection and have that over-push stature to them in a lot of ways. And you can go through, down the line of all sorts of people that that applies to.
2: Yeah, and I, I sort of like to tackle, like, what is it about wrestling where we just sort of not... Uh, specifically but you know there's a big group of the fandom where if someone is heavily pushed that they don't like them because they feel like they're uh, being lied to or told what to Mm -hmm. like or something like that and Mm -hmm. at some point when you're a wrestling fan you know that there's someone behind the scenes making the decision you know that there's a whole bunch of people backstage in terms of like North American wrestling WWE, TNA, ROH Even in Japan, there may not be as many people, but there's obviously people backstage making the decisions on what's going, well, what's going to go on, and who's important, and who's going to be the top guy, and who's not going to get put. So my thing that I've been saying for a long time is that once we enter a certain level of wrestling fandom, when do you stop blaming the performers for being like this handpicked guy and start Mm -hmm. blaming the company for being okay? Why you why do you keep pushing this guy? Why do you keep picking this guy? but you can acknowledge that it also isn't someone's fault because a lot of us still will bash somebody because they are like the, they're the like vessel of the promotions vision, which I understand. Mm-hmm. But you also know that there's somebody back there writing this vision. They just happen to be the leading lead actor.
3: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you, and I pretty much do my best to do that, do what you just said, and t- try to keep things in proper perspective when it comes to wrestling, especially when it comes to who's pushed and who's not pushed. is a great example. Whether he's a golden boy or not, he um, he's someone that's been pushed very heavily and someone that you could totally criticize as being stale or whatever. However, when it comes to his in-ring performance, I'm able to successfully separate that from his push, and Roman Reigns as well. He and like we just mentioned, he totally is a golden boy by every standard. But I'm able to separate that from his push. I think that's what a lot of people have a hard time doing. And why that is, I'm I'm not sure. Wrestling is so weird and such a unique art form, and that's part of what makes me love it so much. Is that this? You know, this would never really happen. I think in any other, you know, form of. Um, entertainment, really. And maybe uh, sports. Or
2: even in sports, but like we mentioned, like LeBron James and Steph Curry. LeBron James is still like at the top of jersey sales. So it's not like mm-hmm. him being like the most promoted player in the league is somehow a bad thing. And people are like, Oh man, I'm sick of LeBron James. I'm no longer going to watch Cavaliers games when they're on ESPN or TNT. They're still mm-hmm. going to tune in. They're still going to watch. They're still going to buy his jerseys. They're still going to vote him in the all star game and all this stuff. Because they're LeBron, he's LeBron James. He delivers, and he's a star. Even if you don't like it or not, I'm not saying all sports fans are rational thinkers and all this <laughs> stuff. Because obviously not. But like, it's not to the same degree where people will be like, "Oh man, how about you just stop putting LeBron James on TV or stop talking about LeBron James?" And you know, <laughs> he does get like favorable coverage on ESPN. There's like the joke that like they'll make up like a amazing record-breaking stat that th- isn't really a thing because lebron james did something but like yeah you know it's lebron james and you're not really no one is ever going to stop telling the nba to oh stop marketing lebron james
3: well as a lebron james hater i i too wish that, like those irrational sports fans i wish they would take him off tnt and espn <laughs> But no 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 it's okay I'm a Grizzlies fan so I'm more depressed about basketball right now <laughs> to, to be upset about lebron but I think there is pushback in a lot of ways when it comes to people like that I think the art of, if you could call it that the art of wrestling in a lot of ways um is so intertwined with crowd reaction yeah even if someone, even if someone boos lebron or steph curry there's respect there and I think there is some some, some sort of similarities between Okada and Roman Reigns who often get uh, a lot of heat uh, From certain segments of fans online, but when you look at it, Roman Reigns is still one of the leading merchandise sellers in WWE, uh, despite whatever his reaction is. So I do think there is a lot of that. A lot of people in sports have their dynasties that they either love or love to hate, but they care about. And I think more than reaction, I think when you look at someone being truly over and what they mean to a company, uh, I think you could still... Get a negative reaction among some people, or a split reaction at best, because there are a lot of people that like Roman Reigns, a lot of people that don't like him, and that's totally fine. But when you look at him, he's still near the top of the the metrics used for that. And I would say I'd be I'd be very surprised if Okada is not uh, right at the top. In fact, I know for a fact he's right near the top for I mean, New Japan it, and,
2: Japan. and even if we weren't doing merchandise, which like you know Naito's obviously um, yeah. been on top of the merchandise game for like two years now. But he's another example of a top guy, or maybe even, I wasn't, I don't think Naito was ever gonna be the ace, but clearly they wanted, they wanted him to be a top guy sooner rather than later. That didn't exactly mm-hmm. work out, and then they got him to the point where he is a real top guy again. But going back to my point, Okada is clearly behind Naito and sometimes behind Kenny Omega and Bullet Club, but always there. Right but you see Okada's real impact in ticket sales, and like you can't exactly. really deny that either.
3: And that's a part of the difference between Japanese and American wrestling as well. And we'll get to this in the differences in you know different places and different companies, but the New Japan, their sort of way of making money is a lot different than WWE's, and ticket sales are a much bigger part of that. And you, like you said, you could totally see the impact someone like Okada could have, whether, they, whether he gets hated on or is popular, depending on a certain person. You could tell he makes an impact when he's on there. So I think that's another point. I think really, you're talking, we're talking, and the more we're talking, I'm thinking, I'm buying into the sports uh, comparison, LeBron is either Roman Reigns or Okada. They're all the same. Mm-hmm. I, I think hows how, we're, how, is how we're, we're going through this. But I definitely think if you are that kind of person, a uh, golden boy, and you take on, you may get disrespected, and you may get a lot of heat from certain fans. But overall, you'll still always have what we're talking about to fall back on. If you can deliver in the ring, those two can. And uh, we've seen that Okada and Roman Reigns, to me, uh, at least, uh they deliver when when they're called upon. So I think that really plays a big part of it, even, even if they're hated on or not.
2: Um, what I do want to get into is uh, the merge between Golden Boy and, Golden Boy and Ace. Because there right. are times when the Golden Boy that they had pegged from early on in their career does become a successful Ace. And then after that, we'll get into guys who became Aces, who weren't exactly meant to be that, like a John Cena who we already got into. But... Mm-hmm. Off the top of the bat of Golden Boys, who then fully transitioned into Aces, Jumbo, Tsuruta, and most recently, Kanesuke Takashita and DDT.
3: Yeah, Jumbo, he was pegged very early on. He was one of, you, you remember when he first started, this was around the time the start of All Japan Pro Wrestling, they had just split from JWA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so literally, was literally
2: from the start, the inception yeah. of... Yeah. Um, of all japan they were already scouting him and had plans for him and were sending him to texas so he could train under the funks so that's right. as soon as they literally opened their door jumbo saruda was already on
3: yep and when you see someone like that it's easy to really kind of criticize someone like that but if you look at the per- the performer he became and he's someone early on that you could look back at some of the they're in the ditch archive if you look at some of his 70s matches you could tell early on he had what it takes mm-hmm. when it comes to wrestling. But he was, he was—he actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, or if the listeners know this, but he was actually an Olympian. He was at the 1972 Olympics in Greco-Roman wrestling. So uh, the, he was very scouted early on. And I think that really plays a part into it. I know Kurt Angle uh, has a lot of that uh, same kind of background of his at Olympian. Obviously a gold medalist is even better. But when you have a lot of that, he, Jumbo became everything you would want out of an ace and he was so su- successful in his career and honestly uh, he was a someone that impacted the company right from the beginning he's someone that impacted it really to, from the beginning to its breaking out point with the four pillars of heaven he was the one that really kickstarted him without them who knows where they would have gone you know but and you look at takashita he's someone that it's very strange, because you might, Dini... might, might have to get into
2: like the specifics of Takashita a little bit more, because people may not know the extent of how hard and how early they had Takashita scouted, because keep in mind, we're talking about this dude being the ace of the company, Takashita's mm-hmm. only 22 years old. Yep, he was born in
3: 1995.
2: Yeah, so to get the scope of what I mean about Takashita being an ace, and being the golden boy still, is yeah. Takashita's well, Sakashita was a very, very um, good track and field athlete. Uh, mm-hmm. That turned into him starting in DDT about seventeen years old, and this may not sound like a lot, but in his first match, he was on DDT's biggest show of the year, which was their uh, Budokan show. Up until the, up until that point, the biggest show DDT had ever ran, main evented by Kenny Omega versus Kota Ibushi. On that show was also a very young Kanesuke Takashita going up against El Generico, known, um, formerly known as, uh, well, currently known as Sami Zayn. Um, yeah. And that may not sound like a lot, but in DET, El Generico was a pretty big deal. He was a well, he was a well respected guy, eventually became the KOD champ um, later on in the year, but he was very, very well respected. So for Takashida. And one of his first matches, maybe literally his first match to ever be televised, we're going to be facing El Generico. Very, very big deal. And then that transitions into him uh, having a whole bunch of tag title reigns. And this is where it kind of changes. Because DDT really did take the time with Takashita. You can say that he's super young now, but they didn't rush him into the main event. They didn't give him the KOD title like super quickly. He worked his way up, teaming with Endo getting into a stable, yep. having um tag matches against uh Yankee Kenju and Golden Lovers that really established him and Endo as top guys for the future, uh having a fail having a fail shot to win the um, King of DDT finals in 2015, uh eventually winning the KOD title in 2016, beating Daisuke Sasaki, and then he loses it at Peter Pan that year, and then he doesn't really kick off this quote-unquote ace run until january of this of this year going through his run beating kudo beating harashima and then going through the entire year just being a dominant champion but that was really five years and they didn't pull the trigger on the real ace run until this year so they did take their time
3: yeah that's true they pushed him really well they gave him a lot of opportunities they didn't they didn't Rush him early on, even with his success. It's funny when you think about that. We talked about Jumbo and his Olympic standards, Kurt Angle and his Olympic gold medal, obviously. So many of these Golden Boys seem to be picked out from other sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, I think it's very interesting when you look at that. Brock Lesnar, too, that we mentioned. When you talk about somebody that early on, it's almost always because of something they did somewhere else. And I think it's a kind of a good metaphor for wrestling and its inferiority complex in a lot of ways. Both by wrestlers and management, that they, the ones they peg for the the goal, so to speak, are from other places. Uh, that it's never just because somebody came in and lit the world on fire in the ring of wrestling. Uh, it's always because of they they were somewhere else that was great uh, an athlete already. But yeah, he's someone Takashida. He's someone that even now he's so successful outside of wrestling. Early on, you know, he I've, I know that he talked about trying to compete for the Olympics uh, when it comes to Japan, you know, as, as a track and field star uh, decathlete type of thing. But with Takashita, how, how great is it too that we're at this point um, that DDT can attain this great athlete that could have been recruited by anyone, but because he fit it, uh, fit what they, they thought of and what they, they fit their standards of what they were looking for. He was the one that chose and they chose him, um, even further along than that, I remember uh, reading a story about him where he was in the crowd as a 12-year-old. At yeah, a B- this, I, was, this, I was actually about to bring this up, is
2: that there is actually footage of a very young kind of Kanesuke Takashita at a DDT show getting kissed by Dino. And yeah. this is something that I mention whenever people talk about... A lot of people still do the thing where they have like this American mindset of what wrestling should be and people jumping and all that stuff. Not understanding that's not really how that works in Japan. On top of that, Takashita was a legitimate DDT fan. He really did like DDT. So, for the fact that they just, like, luckily got this, like, great athlete to fall into their laps, and he was also a fan of what they were doing, No, that that was, like, just a match made in heaven.
3: Yeah, totally. And it it means so much to him. It means so much to the company. And personally, I think Takashita is a fantastic wrestler and ace. And I think they totally have made the right choice with who they've got. And they they did such a good job building him up. So he's the example of a golden boy that was not a failure or anything bad about it. It was a good thing that they picked him out that they scoped him out so early on, and he's grown and totally handled his part of the bargain. So I definitely think he's a great example of someone for an argument that if somebody's using the term Golden Boy in a condescending or negative light, you can point to Takashita as someone that totally lives up to the standards, as well as, of course, Jumbo is one of the greatest of all time. But I think those two are great examples of Golden Boy's done right.
2: Um, and to get back to what you said about wrestling, sort of inferiority complex, that they need that, like, seal of approval from another yeah. sport before they, you know, get behind a guy. This goes back to what I was saying about Okada is that I don't really know Okada's athletic background, but the guy was wrestling before that. Clearly was a re- wrestling guy very young. If he was wrestling at like 16, maybe younger, maybe younger years old. And as we've, as we've like, as you've been able to catch on so far, a lot of these golden boy types that we mentioned weren't wrestling by the time they got to whatever promotion they got plucked straight from whatever sport, got put into a training facility, and then they went to work on them. It's not often that you get a guy that like actually had a wrestling and obviously that's changing now um with WWE's hiring model change and guys with independent wrestling backgrounds getting more chances, but that is still a very rare thing in Japan for a guy that you could call an indie guy, so to speak, for at least three, four years of his career to then be at where he is now
3: doesn't happen that often. Yeah, totally. I I believe Okada had a background in high school baseball before he joined. But uh, it definitely was not amateur wrestling or track or anything like that. Uh, He he did have a little bit of a background, but, you know, someone like that, um, like we said, Okada was wrestling, kind of worked his way up for a while. It was more along the lines of when he got to New Japan, they they saw that and, and put the rocket to him. But, when you look at someone like Takashina and Jumbo, and even now a very modern example of someone in the Joshi world uh, named uh, Jihiro Hashimoto,
1: mm-hmm.
3: she was a tremendous amateur wrestler in, in so many ways, and she was pegged right from the start. As soon as she got done training, within one year, she won uh, the Sendai Girls' World Title for Mako Satomura, who's one of the most respected and beloved Joshi wrestlers, as well as the Booker of Sendai Girls. And so she, you know, she saw that in her so fast. Takashida got judged, um, judged, got produced so well in DDT that they did give him a lot of time to simmer, so I think it's interesting depending on, I think a lot of that really more than anything in terms of a golden boy, is more determined by a booker's personal style than necessarily anything they do, and I think DDT was more patient than a company like, um, certain others were, and All Japan, obviously, back in the day with excursions, was, um, you know, more along the line of an Okada type of deal. Uh, Okada really came in after he got back. from but, but he had to eat a lot of crap <laughs> before before he could kind of get there. So they, those guys definitely paid their dues in their own way. Takashita as well.
2: And now I want to get into the people that weren't initially pegged to be aces. But they worked their way up. And eventually the crowd reaction matched up to that mm-hmm. of an ace. And they filled those roles Perfectly whenever they were called upon and just grew into being great at them. Uh, excuse me. One person that comes to mind right away is Kento Miyahara and Kento Miyahara dealt with a lot of shit
3: before getting to all Japan
2: and getting to the run that he's on now. The last.
1: Yeah.
3: His story is very interesting because he started off in Kinsuke office. Oh. Uh, also now, later known as diamond ring, which is Kinsuke Sasaki's kind of group that he had. And Miyahara, he, he was trained under Kinsuke Sasaki and faced a lot of abuse with his time there and very famously at the hands of Katsuhiko Nakajima, a failed ace for Noah. But their relationship is very, very bad uh, because of the things that he had to go through. And in Noah, he when Because Kinsuke Office and, and Diamond Rig were more of a company that kind of gave guys to Noah, more so than so so their we, own...
2: So so, so, so they like put it in like... simple terms, they were like a feeder
3: system for Noah. Exactly. Like, a lot of the guys Sasaki trained would bring their guys to Noah and bring those guys in, and Miyahara was one of them. He had a long career in Noah, like four years before he even got to All Japan. But eventually, he really just wasn't going anywhere in Kinsuke's office, and Nakajima was clearly the favorite, and he got out. You know, he got out. He wasn't a part of Noah, so that really enabled him to jump If he was an assigned Noah person... I don't know if the jump would have been as easy for him or he would have done it because of the Japanese way and the Japanese mentality when it comes to wrestling. But because he was with Kinsuke's office, it was a little bit easier for him. So when he came to All Japan, he started off uh, hanging out and feuding with and teaming up with people from this stable called the Dark Kingdom, uh, which was led by uh, Kenzo Suzuki, which is never a good place to be. (laughs) But, uh, But... he was able to grow, and he got picked up pretty early on. Akiyama saw something into, in him. This was after the burning and everything like that deal had come into place. But really within a year or two after struggling, and he did work his way up. It wasn't like he automatically was anointed as the next in line. But after eating all of that crap that he had to, and all the things he had to do, even, even his title reign, honestly, if Go Shiozaki never left all Japan to go back to Noah. There's a pretty good chance Miyahara would not have won his title, uh, until probably a, at least a year after he actually did. Well, because even, a lot of
2: Even, like, even without, even, like, the Goshi Ozaki stuff, there's other things like Akibono getting hurt and Suwama getting hurt. So now, yeah, yeah. like, there's, like, three different, like, like three separate times where Kento Miyahara was, like, clearly, like, all, like, being, like, set up for something, but it being put in big matches. Um, with veterans and teaming with but no one expected Kento to win the belt so quickly. But no. it just happened to be time and place in that it was necessary for the promotion at the time. And in early 2016, all Japan Kento Miyahara was given the ball. Don't really, don't really think anyone knew what to expect, and lo and behold, it just happened to work out perfectly.
3: And that might be one of the greatest cases uh, of an ace because. If you remember, not only that all of these things that were working against him, but that company was on its deathbed. Like Akiyama was doing interviews saying, I don't know if we'll make it three months for, for all Japan. You know, shortly before. Oh, yeah, like, you know,
2: let's, let's be clear that this isn't a joke. They were literally dying and people were leaving, top guys were getting hurt, nobody knew what to do. And their last effort before putting the belt on Miyahara was just him or Zeus. And truthfully, and I love
3: Zeus, I have no idea where we'd be right now if Zeus won the Oh man, that would be interesting. I love Zeus too. I I don't want to be negative, but it definitely wouldn't have turned out as good as it did now because they're actually really thriving. As we speak, they just had a a really great house in Korokun. Um... As we speak, just not a few days ago, they had over 1,600 people. And that never would have happened before Miyahara. I think two years ago, before his title reign, they were doing like half of that yeah. for core shows, if not less. So Miyahara, to me, is one of the great, great feel good stories and one of the great inspirational stories in wrestling because he wasn't, not only was he the, the first choice in Diamond Ring and Kensuke Office. He wasn't the first choice there. He goes to all Japan. He's way down the pecking order. But they did see something in him to have him around there. But he gets thrust in this position that nobody thought he was ready for. And totally turns a minus into a plus And kills it. And is an amazing ace right now. And like you said, was the ultimate non-golden boy. Because of all that he had to go through. And all the the hoops he had to jump through. And not only that, too. One more thing to note. In Kensuke's office... There were so many others in Kinsuke Office and NOAH that were great rookies, had super potential. These guys, Ota, Ito, Okita. Okita is such a great wrestler, if you've never seen him in NOAH. Noah, He was so awesome, I thought he could be a great star. But they quit! They all quit wrestling because of all sorts of circumstances. But Miyahara made it through. He was like the only one besides Nakajima, I think, of Kinsuke Office that made it through. And he's such a great success story. So he, he's, uh, I can't say enough about Miyahara as an ace and as a wrestler and as a person. Uh,
2: moving on to another one oh. that uh, yeah, some people might say was sort of a golden boy because of the new generation, three Musketeers labeling, but Hiroshi Tanahashi was not meant to be as big of a deal as he wound up being, especially in the time period in which he came in. Um, when, when the MMA influence was still very big in New Japan, he was the pretty boy, um, and didn't really have the kind of shoot background that Katsuyori Shibata and Shinsuke Nakamura had. But as time goes on and Shinsuke Nakamura doesn't work out the way the company would have hoped, and they got away, um, from the MMA and Hiroshi Tanahashi's brand of wrestling just happened to catch on and Katsuyori Shibata left, Hiroshi Tanahashi was left to carry the load. and for eight, nine years, um, maybe longer, depending on when you think Okada truly became the top guy in the promotion, Hiroshi Tanahashi carried the promotion on his back through dark times, through the renaissance, and mm. now when they're thriving, he's still coming up, going out there and having great matches. Not quite the ace anymore, but for the time that he had to be on top, Hiroshi Tanahashi did the very best he could, and I don't think they were expecting Tanahashi to be the guy to have to leave.
3: No, not at all, Quinn. Um, Tanahashi, it's funny because when he started off, if you ever see any of his old, old matches, we're talking like 2001, I remember he had a match with like Scott Hall in New Japan at that time, so you know it was old. But if you look at him in his really young days, he looked exactly like Naito in No Limit and his kind of early babyface singles push. Uh, so similar in so many ways and it it always made me laugh because i always thought they kept wanting to go to this muto trend and they just wanted guys that looked exactly the same but then tanahashi grew into this whole different thing he was very well known before this thing with nakamura because he had an incident where he was stabbed by his ex um that gave him a huge bump in popularity But even still, they never really went all the way with him. It was more, like you said, Nakamura's the one that got the title in 2004 uh, in a shockingly stupid booking decision, (laughs) in fact. And and really an all-time bad one because it was over Tenzan who had just finally won the title. And it was totally the wrong time for Nakamura, no matter how good he was in MMA, because he actually has a really good record for what he did in MMA, much better than Shibata's. But with that bad timing aside... Tanahashi maintained his run uh, not, as a ma- not as a main eventer, but also not as an undercarder. He wasn't completely forgotten, but he was a mid midcarder with upside, and the fans generally rose behind him as the years went by, and I think 2005 or 2006 was when he first won the title. I believe it was 2006. But he finally won the title, the IWGP title, and that was able to carry them through a lot of dark times, like we said. And honestly, I'll tell you right now, I'll be the first one to tell you, I've said it about Okada and his booking that, to me, uh, well, we'll get into this a little later on, but sometimes it feels like you're kind of running in place with certain characters and certain storyline arcs and how they book. Tanahashi was the epitome of that for me as a a fan when I started watching in 2008, 2009. I just thought it was the same thing over and over. But Tanahashi, despite that, was able to maintain his popularity with the crowds. And as you mentioned, he carried them through this renaissance. And not only did he do his best, He's a great case, and I think a lot of people, when they point to Okada as a golden boy, I think they can kind of point to this sort of thing. They New Japan wanted Okada to be the ace at a certain point, and Tanahashi was the ace to the fans. Even if he wasn't the ace to the bookers, he was the ace to the fans longer than they expected. Case in point, the Tokyo Dome main event that they voted for Tanahashi and Nakamura over Okada and Naito. Uh, the, the booking wanted Naito and Okada to win that poll. And if he was the ace to the fans, he would have won that poll. But Tana, it was Tanahashi and Na, Nakamura, and they went with them longer than they do. Obviously, now Okada is definitely the ace of New Japan. Tanahashi is not that anymore. But without Tanahashi, Okada would not be able to be successful. And that, to me, is the most, arguably the most important part of a true ace. And Jumbo Saruda is the shining example of this, but Tanahashi has done an excellent job with his role as passing the torch in very exciting and great ways to Okada and really helped him and helped the next generation in general in New Japan.
2: And still doing it, you know, facing Jay White at Wrestle Kingdom 12 in a match that he's probably going to lose, but even if Jay White doesn't win, it's not like he just kills Jay White or something. Jay White faces Tanahashi in a big match at the Tokyo Dome. You know, Mm -hmm. not a lot of people get to say that. Especially in his first match back from Excursion compared to Okada when, let's look at it. Okada faced Yoshihashi on Wrestle Kingdom 6 and then came out later to challenge Tanahashi. He didn't face Tanahashi until a month later. Jay White's first match back in general is going to be against Tanahashi. So it's something where Tanahashi is just, he has an ego, definitely. He wants to be the best. He has, he wants to have the best match of the night. He gets jealous when he um, is an end the main event. He wants to. He wants people to remember him, but he's not yeah. selfish in a way where he won't put somebody over.
3: Yeah, totally. I I completely agree with you on that one. I think he's done an excellent job. I uh, really one of the more unselfish main eventers that I actually that I can think of. And you know, it just says so much about him that he was able to hold that ace position so long, and even now to bring it full circle to the start of all this, he successfully overcome his ace role into the position of a top guy in the company that has so much popularity with the fans but doesn't need to main event or have the title every night to be effective for where he's at on the card
4: promotional consideration paid for by the following hey pro wrestling announcer kevin kelly
2: here i want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at place to be nation it's
4: really easy to do just head to itunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed,
2: which, of course, includes the full archives of the Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod
4: feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin
2: your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to
0: Scott. Scott. Place to Be Nation's J.T. Rizzero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Placesimation.com. And we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling.
4: In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Poirier, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics On Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, The Feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the Hard Traveling Fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including
0: The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes, and while there be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others, available on Placemination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using placemadation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar and Westworld. Norquard Island, Fall River, Massachusetts, the History of Wrestling.com and Scott Keats' blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. Placetimination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
2: Another one that I think fits this think idea is someone from the original Three Musketeers, Shinya Hashimoto. And back in that era in Japanese wrestling, Someone like Shinya Hashimoto's body type was more widely accepted as multi- all this, but still, there's Keiji Muto and there's Masahiro Chono there. So if you just compare excursions, just look at what Keiji Muto was doing on his, on his excursions. He was going everywhere and doing everything, whether it be working in Puerto Rico or working um, in um, uh, Jim Crockett, um, just going all around the world um, and being presented as a big deal everywhere he went. And then eventually coming back and just being like uh, immediate top star there too. Shinya yep. wasn't exactly the same in how he was treated, but as time goes on and you get sort of inconsistencies with Muto and Chono, Hashimoto was there as just like consistent steering of the ship. And then eventually, once we completely move on from like the Anoki. Ujinami, Choshu guys who are still there. Hashimoto was yeah. just there to be that rock that's leading the promotion.
3: Yeah, totally. Uh, he's another one that has a lot of legit background in his own way. And I think we, we didn't really get into what an ace is or our philosophy of what an ace is. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm, I'm wanted to to me- get, we can get into that now.
3: Yeah, uh, but I think it relates to what I'm about to say really relates to him in particular, and a lot of people, but especially him. To me, more than anything, for an ace is, yes, the main star of the company, heavily protected by booking, with the intention of someone being the face of the company in and outside of the ring, and hope to be, obviously, hopefully, you think your ace is the most popular star in the company. But most importantly to me, it's someone, the ace is someone that encapsulates the promotion itself to a T synonymous with the company, synonymous with those letters. And to do that, you can be helped along by fitting into a particular mold that connects with fans and what they want at a particular time and a particular place. If Inoki had decided as a booker when Hashimoto came around that he said, look, screw all this strong style real sports crap, I want to do a sports entertainment promotion like WWE, then Hashimoto wouldn't have been the ace. Because he wouldn't have fitted that mold. Muto would have been the the true ace of the company. Because he fit that mold a lot better. But because of the time and place that they were in, Hashimoto was someone that represented what the fans wanted to see in a true, believable, badass fighter. He's someone with a karate background, a judo background. And someone that just looks completely unstoppable in the ring someone that you do not want to mess with in real life you know Uh, if you got into a fight with someone Hashimoto would not be very high on your list and I think a lot of what really helped him too in his run was that he was around to defend New Japan and a lot of people don't know this now I think a lot of people think now is the most successful New Japan's ever been but in terms of box office the actual most successful moment for New Japan was when they had their feud with UWFI which was a shoot-style promotion led by Nobuhika, Nobuhika Takada. And Nobuhiko Takada was the, the ace of UWFI. But Hashimoto defended it from these real shooters, quote-unquote, which was their kind of trademark deal for UWFI, as well as later against uh, Naoya Ogawa, which is a very famous feud for Hashimoto. So Hashimoto represented the spirit of Strong Style, the spirit of New Japan to the fans, and that's what made him the ace. That's what made his connection so special that you don't just get by being a great wrestler or a you know even a great character. You have to represent what the company is to the fans and what the fans want. And Tanahashi, you could look at him. He represents to the fans what the fans wanted because they did westernize their product to an extent, During this renaissance, when they went out to more, when they went on Ustream, and later on, they really had a more Western take on their wrestling. And who better than Tanahashi, whose idols were Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle, to blend the style of New Japan that everyone loved with the Western style they wanted to bring in. And in Hashimoto's case, he represented the fighting spirit of New Japan at the time to defend from these outsiders and these shoot-style invaders. That's so important (laughs) to his, his run and his legacy in New Japan.
2: And I think this kind of touches on something is that, that when you almost think of an ace, they don't have to have the title to be yeah, the ace. Totally. And this is something that just crossed my mind when you're th- talking about Hashimoto and how they represent the spirit of the company in general. AJ Styles, TNA, yeah. he wasn't always in the main event. He did whatever the company asked of him, whether it be the Division guy, a tag team guy, whenever they wanted to give him a main event singles run, he would, he would get it. But through and through, AJ Styles represented the spirit and passion of TNA. He was their guy. He was the fans' guy. So even if you bring in your Stings and your Kurt Angle, Booker T's, and your Kevin Nash's, Mm -hmm. all all those things are fine. But at the end of the day, AJ Styles is TNA through and through. And they believe in AJ Styles because he's been there with them and they've seen him grow. So... You may not think of him as a stereotypical ace, as he didn't have this big year-long reign and he didn't main event all the shows. But, but if we're going by what you're saying and how they rep, like they encapsulate the spirit and um, strength of, of a promotion,
3: that's what AJ Styles was for a very long time there. And lo- and for, <laughs> there's no greater example of that because look how bad they fell off when he left. Yeah, you know. When they lost their ace, that's really when things really all fell apart for TNA, was when AJ left. And I think that's a great example of someone that doesn't have to have the title or be super over, or super pushed rather, to be over in the heart of the fans. And I think that's the most important thing to the ace, and I think that's a great point. Someone who really started out in the X division, which really put TNA on the map in the first place and successfully transitioned to a heavy-rate run at someone that really encapsulated what uh, the ethics of TNA, what the fans wanted to believe TNA was about, even if a lot of the times the bookers (laughs) had different ideas than what the fans wanted in in TNA, unfortunately. But AJ always encapsulated the promotion. I think you're totally right.
2: So now that we have definitions for all of these things— And we've discussed how none of these things are mutually exclusive. You don't have to be one to be the other, but you can be one while you're Mm -hmm. one of these things. Uh, let's go back to a lot of us as viewers. Why do you think we tend to view, or at least some of us in this bubble, when we talk about wrestling, discuss wrestling, because we are passionate and we do care? Yeah. Why do you, why do you think we see so much pushback against the most pushed guys
3: in the promotion? You know, First of all, I just want to totally give you props for what you just said, because I think it's something a lot of people, especially wrestlers, uh, I'm someone who wrestled early on in my life, and I've seen it myself, and I've seen it online still to this day, is that wrestlers don't appreciate how much fans care about wrestling truly. A lot of fans don't, and they, they look at that as a negative for some reason. Uh, to want to learn more about behind the scenes and the inner workings and the secrets of the ring, I think it's totally flattering and awesome that fans want to do that. And I'm someone who always wanted to do that myself. So I think a lot of people don't really understand that. And a lot of fans even nowadays criticize people for quote-unquote being too negative. Hell, when I, think, I think fans <laughs> criticize other fans more than wrestlers criticize fans. Yeah, exactly. Like not, nowadays, it's more the fans than the, the wrestlers. It used to be the wrestlers that looked down on the fans. Now the fans uh, criticize the other fans. But to me, I think every criticism has merit uh, for the most part. If it's well thought out and you can explain it well, obviously you're just some people are just going to be haters, quote-unquote uh for no reason but most of the fans that i know especially in you and i's bubble quentin are people that love wrestling so much and that's why they hold it up to that sort of standard and i think the same thing applies to the quote unquote golden boy and a standard because obviously there is pushback in a lot of ways a lot of that is due to to me as i mentioned they they, people don't want to be told what to do or feel like they're being force-fed something they'd rather it happen naturally in their own way But also, I think, just because someone at that level, at that tip-top level, has a microscope on them, that someone that in the undercard may not have that same microscope on them and have those same expectations. Uh, You know, if you're someone that loves an undercarder in New Japan, I think you look at them a bit differently than a main eventer. Whether that's fair or foul, I think a lot of people take that into consideration when they judge people. And... Oftentimes, it leads to criticism of aces, whether it be Okada, Roman Reigns, uh, you know, golden boys like them, or aces like Okada. You know, I think the fans really have that passion combined with the fact that they're putting a microscope on these top stars and the importance that they hold to the company, because truly the ace is the most important person to a company uh, in, in many ways. So I think that microscope is on them. In the same way that a team captain, is, just to bring it back to sports again, a team captain, a team leader, has that microscope on them in a different way than perhaps a role player. In basketball, a great example would be Marc Gasol right now for the Grizzlies, uh, someone who gets criticized a lot by a lot of people for his role despite being the best player on the team in a lot of ways. But because he is the leader, he gets criticized and is held to a higher standard. And I think that is the same thing that's true of people like Okada, people like John Cena, people like Reigns, and many others that come before them and after them. And I think a lot of that really has to do with that.
2: And I think the thing <laughs> that I always uh, keep in mind when I look at people and how passionately they get about, Oh, this is being shut down our throes, I don't want to see this person on top and beating everybody and having this long reign is when you look at your favorites on the undercard and you can have somebody that you think could be a main eventer and should be pushed more, which is a different, conver- which is a different conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can have somebody on the undercard that you think is really good. really entertaining, but realistically, you don't think they could, you know, be in that person's spot. So where do we draw the line then? Because if you do not want this person to be the top guy, to be the ace, and you think they're getting golden boy treatment, then when you do all this, where exactly do you say, "Okay, offer a solution." Or are you or are you just going to keep saying this person shouldn't be this, this, this person shouldn't be, and then not actually give an answer on what we could be doing better.
3: You know, I think that's a good point. And a lot of fans can't criticize things for that way. But uh, hopefully if you do criticize someone constantly, some that holds someone to that standard, like an Okada is a perfect example, you would think of someone that you would want to give a shot to. Because to me, I, I think an example of someone you're talking about at least in my vision of New Japan right now, not to be so New Japan heavy on these things, but like Yoshihashi is someone that I think is super underrated and someone that always puts in maximum effort, but I realistically know he would not be as good of an ace as Okada at this point for all sorts of reasons. you you know. And and I accept that. I'm not calling for Yoshihashi to be the ace, but I still enjoy his work greatly. And Okada, I think if you were to say, I'm bored of him, he's stale, uh, which I think is totally fair criticism in a lot of ways. You know, it is really who is next in line, because to me, a lot of times in booking, and uh, I know this, I'm kind of, kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but personally, I think for a wrestling promotion, I like there to be three or four consistently top stars, which are strongly protected. Um, but occasionally someone else can win to not only freshen things up at the top, keep unpredictably higher, but also give fans of other wrestlers hope that maybe if you don't see it in a performer as a booker, keep a broader number of people happy. It's rarely done, but to me, and I'm totally jumping to a different company now, but to me, Daniel Bryan's title win, a brief run, as brief as it was for all sorts of reasons, that comes to mind as an example of someone that the company didn't really have plans for, or you could obviously say, and you know, every a year or two beforehand you said, he will be the face of the company winning WrestleMania, Uh, The main event at WrestleMania, they'd probably think, "Whoa, that's crazy." A lot of fans would say that, but it it came true. And in New Japan, it feels like the title has been firmly entrenched in the hands of Okada and Tanahashi, with brief interludes from AJ and Naito for a month for over six years now. You know, when title defenses happen as frequently as they do, that's another thing that kind of holds it back. Uh, The old days, Bruno Sammartino and Bob Backlund can have thousands of days as the champion. But nowadays, you're seeing title defenses all the time. You're seeing so much wrestling all the time. The standard is so high that they do hold it. And that, that can be a little grating. Uh, what is Honestly, and a great example of that is in 2018 in New Japan, just as the example, what is the hope that someone outside of Okada, Naito, maybe Omega, maybe Tanahashi can rise up and become champion in 2018? Uh, really none. You, you, you know, in, in a lot of ways. But, and this is where I'm going to counter my own point here a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, All Japan Pro Wrestling's booking in 2017 was kind of random. They didn't really think about how to end Miyahara's title reign through. And they ended up just flip-flopping the belt. They had like five title, four, three or four or five title reigns in a month or so. You know, and one of them only lasted ten days. And that's that's horrible, you know. So it can really go both ways. But definitely not, uh, it's something where you have to understand that not everyone can get a turn with the world title and with the ace position or the top star and main event position. Uh, not everyone can be that, you know, ultimately, and that's what you have to keep in mind. But and the world champion specifically should be at a certain level that is exceptional. And I think uh, for the most part, it goes pretty well in major companies. They, they really do have that in mind, at least
2: and to go and to go back a well, little bit go back when little i bit. when i talk about how if you're going to talk about this person is boring this person's stale we need mm-hmm. someone new on top i'm not saying that you have to then like them and shut up and take what you're like take what you're um, getting as a viewer i don't believe in that i don't believe in just you know shut up and yeah. just enjoy the wrestling but what That's i'm it. saying is is that you also just have to keep in mind that there is a hierarchy a hierarchy is how wrestling works It's how wrestling is always. Now, there are some places that have a little bit of a looser hierarchy, sometimes too loose, but that's just how wrestling works. And that's just how you build a star. That's how you make somebody important. You don't make somebody important by having them just, you know, feel like everybody else on the roster. And sometimes you just don't like the person's work. You know, that's good. That's an opinion thing. You don't have to like the person's wrestling. Um, if you don't like Roman Reigns' wrestling, that's fine. You don't like Okada's wrestling, John Cena's wrestling, Takashita's wrestling, Yamato's wrestling, whatever. You don't have to like any of it. But like, then we do get into the ter- ter- territory of um, you know, if someone is working to the standard of, what ex- of what's expected from them in that company, and it's mm-hmm. you know, uh, long mat work exchange and an exciting finishing stretch. You know, they're just kind of working to what's expected of them. That's a different conversation, though. Um, yeah. I do want to get into how WWE, I think, has kind of perverted the expectations of what a main event picture is and should be. A lot of people that are, you know, American or Western fans like us, that if you were just watching Raw or SmackDown or just look at WWE booking, it really is everyone almost getting a turn. And they'll make excuses to give somebody a turn. Like the money in the bank, or Royal Rumble, or whatever else like that. But I think that kind of booking has kind of changed the way fans view things, because now they want something new almost every two months seemingly, and that's mm-hmm. just not how wrestling used to work. And I'm not saying that we have to go back to having thousand day title reigns or eight year title reigns, but I do think this has kind of breeded a impatience in wrestling fans that just is kind of harmful especially when we when we get to american wrestling and people who grew up on american wrestling then branching out into other things and not Mm -hmm. quite understanding that that's just not how it works
3: yeah you're absolutely right you know wwe i i don't mean to defend them in any way because you're totally right but they have a lot of tv to fill Mm a lot of important shows and not always an equal amount of booking and writing competence backstage. Things have changed a lot over the years, not always for the better. I think it, pretty much anybody would agree with that. I, I think the difference is um, the difference is most felt among people who solely watch WWE or those who watch companies trying to mix their styles with WWE a little bit. Like uh, New Japan has become a little more westernized, but they've kept the title really strong in a lot of ways. On uh, like I mentioned, Okada Tanahashi. Uh, TNA, Ring of Honor, they've really kind of taken more of that kind of style in a lot of ways. And obviously, WCW in the 90s was just a, a horrible disaster in so many ways. And that whole company is known for pretty much screwing up everything they've ever done. So that there's no point in even talking about them, really. <laughs> but WWE, like you said, they've done a lot of changing of the viewers, and they've trained their viewers this, this way. I don't know if it was on purpose, but part of me kind of thinks it has because... That stuff that you're talking about, that money in the bank, and things of that nature, that's just another way to kind of let someone have a cheap title reign uh, in a lot of ways. Something that's maybe not as earned, not, not as true. And that really devalues the belt in a lot of ways. Now they have two world titles uh, that also lets more people have the, the world title reigns. They give it to people like Jinder Mahal <laughs> and, and, don't, and don't think about it that much. Uh, like you said, when you, someone like that watches WWE, you, things can get tiring really fast. And when you look at that, when you watch four big shows a month, plus a pay-per-view, uh, plus four other big shows a month on the other br- brand, plus a pay-per-view, plus NXTs a month, you know, when you're watching all of these different things, uh, it, it can't really be the same, you know? even It can't even go back to... Um, You know, like I said, it can't even really have a year-long title reign anymore with how they do it because there's just so much that they have to fill and so many um, masters they have to serve of their own volition that some ways I don't really agree with what they do and how they do things, but when you think about who they have running the show in a lot of ways and how much they have to do, it's inevitable things would... They would lose their way and how they protect aces and how they build their stars, and that's why... They don't have that many stars or really an ace at all right now because they they just haven't been able to really protect their titles and protect their stars and how they should. And and
2: it does get to the point where if someone did happen to get bored of WWE and I'm someone that doesn't watch much of WWE, but say someone did get sick of WWE and they want to branch out and watch a different product, whether it be... Something still in a, still something still in the States or something in Europe now, something in Japan. They do still have a vision of what wrestling is and what wrestling titles and championships and pushes look like based off what they saw in WWE because that's all they know. So when we do have people that go out and branch into different things and watch different kinds of wrestling, they are kind of impatient when it comes to seeing different title reigns and different people get. Main event spots because in their eyes they've just seen like six different people close raw in just like the last five weeks or something. So all these things in um, this WWE always being on the go and having a different person to be in the top program or being a top program every single week compared to it being just only the same four guys. For a promotion throughout the entire year can really throw you off, and that lack of patience in WWE booking can rub off in what you're trying to watch now.
3: Yeah, I, I completely agree with, agree with that. You know, I don't watch as much WWE as some others, but I try to at least keep my finger on the pulse because I, I like to I like to know. You know, I like to be educated in what's going on anywhere in the world, and I do try to watch as much as I can. But when you're watching Raw, and you see somebody. I don't mean to be mean, but like when this the drifter Elias Sampson is in the main event of Raw, uh, you know you could probably protect that spot a little more. <laughs> you know, I, I, feel, I feel like. In New Japan, it's not, it's not like Yujiro is main eventing in New Japan. Even on spot shows, you know, they at least keep the main event to, to kind of importance. And that's something that they could really learn from to try to protect their top spots a little better, whether it's on Raw or whether it's on... A pay-per-view or whether it's the championship because when you have people like that main eventing then who gives a damn who's main eventing because it doesn't matter you know and that's kind of how i think a lot of people i think if you asked a lot of raw fans they said does it matter to main event raw they would say no you know, and I think that's a, that's a shame, and it doesn't have to be that way. But they did it themselves. You know, they have no one to blame but themselves and their own poor booking and handling of situations like that, and pushing people like uh, Elias, who should not ever be in the main event, uh, to, to the main event, and it, that should just never happen. You know, and I think New Japan's a lot more careful about that. Uh, also, one more point I wanted to add on to that because you mentioned the booking and sometimes too loose and things like that, and I think that really brings up why. The booking style, however you think you could say one does it better than the other, but like you said, they still have an idea, a clear cut of idea of how things work. If you go from GW to New Japan, it's not some wild departure. But I think that's why a lot of people trek to New Japan in the indies and people don't go to Lucha as much more, because the booking in Lucha is so on another planet, and I think it's definitely a clear example of something that's too loose, where nothing matters pretty much. Uh, in, in many ways, they don't They do not do a good job at all. So I think that really plays a part in why people don't go to Lucha as much as other promotions, because whether it's in Europe or Japan or, you know, in America, in the Ring of Honor in the Indies, companies like uh, CMLL have completely bif- different booking styles than any of those companies. And I think that plays a hard part of why it's so hard for some people to get into Lucha Libre when they have booking like that.
2: Yeah, let's get into this yeah. now. Is like, you know, looking at the booking in different regions of the world. I think Mm -hmm. right right off the bat, you can say that Japan uh, is a little bit more strict in how they'll push guys, whether it be your Dragon Gate, your DDT, even though DDT does have its wacky title reigns and give people, you know, 30 day KOD up on my title reigns. They are, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty clear. And here are our top guys Here's who's gonna go on last and who should be taken seriously, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Um, All Japan, Noah, everybody has it. When we get to Europe, there is like still some semblance of tightness in it. There aren't a lot of guys who are in Europe and just getting title reigns just because. Uh a recent example of it happening was Pastor William Ever in Progress, but even then that happened for one show, it was a feel good moment and they went right back to Marty Scurll and the main program there. Uh, Yeah. In America, obviously we just went over how loose it was in WWE, even though you still have clear guys that are supposed to be more important, like your Roman, Braun, AJ, Samoa Joe kind of guys. And that still translates into ring of honor where you still have someone like a Cody Rhodes, but there's a Jay lethal, uh, uh, formerly Adam Cole was there, and other people there who could kind of like fill in, but still a little loose. The
3: Briscoes would be another one, mm-hmm. Jay Briscoe. Yeah,
2: um, um. but when we get to Lucha, when we get to Mexico, Mexico really is a place where it's just hard to pinpoint exactly how any of these things. fit. And <laughs> you would put down Mystico on this list for guy for someone that was maybe like the last true ace <laughs> to be in Mexico. And when you think about it historically, you can like go list off a bunch of big stars in mexico but yeah. by the definition of what we were going off of there aren't historically a lot of
3: aces so to speak no no someone like i think besides Mystico, someone that really translates well to me as an ace because different styles and different ways you know do a lot of lead to a lot of different kinds of aces Let's just say and I think someone like in Lucha that you can look back is all the way back to El connect and UWA yeah, getting pushed over Luthez Wrestling Andre the Giant and things like that Uh, he he's someone that was a total ace for UWA was always at the top for like 10 years. He was uh, Conan and Hijo del Santo and both AAA and especially CMLL for Io del Santo because him coming in immediately uh, and, turning, and he's another good example because I think a lot of problems, too, not a problem necessarily, but just a fact that a lot of aces are often babyface characters and, and yeah. technically in Mexico. But Hilda uh, Santo, Santito, he's someone that when he turned heel was where it really where he accomplished and sealed his legacy in CMLL. And, and then, really, after that, uh, you did this, the list isn't very long. You know, someone like Mistico comes along. And you could consider him a golden boy uh, a little bit because he was pegged right away as soon as he was put in the Mystico gimmick. Uh, I guess the Mystico gimmick could be considered a golden boy, not necessarily the person playing it because he wrestled before that, obviously. But as soon as he became Mystico, he was the ace because he was exactly what the fans needed, just like Hara- um, Hiroshima. Uh, Hiroshima was an ace too in DDT as the king <laughs> of the year. E- <laughs> but just like uh, Hashimoto was just what New Japan needed, Mistico was what the Mexican fans needed at the time. In a really down period, someone that, obviously, if you know Mexico, it's a very Catholic country, religious country. His Mistico's backstory was that he was this orth- orphan and this religious place that was raised by Frey Tormenta, the wrestling priest. <laughs> you know, the lucha priest. And Mistico came in, got super pushed. Uh, they did it perfectly, and it led to the biggest run of all time in CMO due, due to his great popularity and obviously his talent. Uh, played a big role in that. He couldn't have just sucked and be, be that. That's true of most aces, pretty much any ace, actually. But a lot of that was due to how they presented him. And after that, since Mystico's gone, there's really been nobody that steps up to that point. There's someone that's kind of like... Uh, I guess the closest thing you have now uh, was when Alberto El Patron was in AAA, that Conan was friends with him and really went out of his way to protect him. And in CML, I think Ultimo Guerrero uh, is very heavily protected, but obviously he has a lot of power at booking. So much like Triple H, obviously he's going to uh, get a lot of push, but he's not, <laughs> he's not, he's not, he's not, he's not a true ace to me. Um, Ultimo Guerrero isn't. I, I don't think he would qualify as that. I think Mystico was the last ace of CMLL, and a lot of that's due to booking in general because Ultimo Guerrero, despite getting pushed in a given week, if you watch four weeks of CML Super Virenette shows, which is their main show on Friday, you could get four weeks of a completely random six-man tag that may have, makes no difference in any storylines, uh, means nothing, and, you know, there's just no point in watching it, really, and except you just hope that it's a good action. And it's really more just to appease tourists, and that's what they go through now. So uh, a lot of their booking really isn't, and in Lucha Libre in general, really isn't, you know, fit to make aces in the traditional sense that we know
2: of, and I think like when you just look at Lucha and how like the people like we regarded as all time greats, I don't think many people call Mystico an all time great wrestler, all time great draw, all time great draw sure, but um, look at the guys who do, who do get put up on the pedestals being all time great wrestlers, wrestlers like your Negro like your Negro Casas, your Osay uh like your El Dandy, guys like True. that who are regarded like highly for their skill in the ring and mm-hmm. were very popular in their own rights and we're putting big matches and big settings and we're expected to be big stars just aren't. And this is yeah. something that I mean, it's, uh, like just aren't big like aces, is what I mean. But yeah uh, when you just look at it like and compare it to like the guys that we do have on top in like, you know, Japanese wrestlers and American wrestlers, mm-hmm. there is very clear, oh yeah, this guy was it or if someone has Steve Austin. He's not exactly the golden boy, but ace top guy, teetering between that kind of stuff. And in lucha, no matter how much I love it, it is very, very uh. It's much more different. It's a much more different world, and I think this mm-hmm. like sometimes makes it harder to make somebody's case for being like, you know, just for example, the wrestling and Hall of Fame, and how yeah. and how much goes into lucha and the candidates from mexico not getting in and um los mission and los um, the missionaries of death like got really close this year but everyone says that there's like a whole bunch of people from mexico that should be getting in and if you Mm -hmm. look at importance and drawing and all that stuff there there is a lot of people that should have been in the hall of fame already but as we're getting to a lot of it is top guys but not a lot of people who stand above the pack.
3: Yeah, uh, and it's totally true. Someone like, and I think another thing that leads that to it, um, especially in Japan, the ace, it's very, very rare. And I'm not even sure if you could really point to it happening necessarily. It's very, very rare that a freelance person becomes the ace of a company. It would, it's usually someone that is in the system and someone that's signed and their top guy. Obviously, that's the whole point of an ace in a lot of ways. In Lucha Libre, guys have jumped back and forth so many times. Uh, like we mentioned with Conan and Hijo del Santo, they jumped back and forth. Someone like Blue Panther jumped back and forth. Uh, he could have been the ace in theory, but you know he was back and forth between AAA and CML. Someone like L.A. Park never really has settled down with a company. Someone like Dr. Wagner Jr. has had a hard time getting there. So I think that plays on lucha. It's a much more common in, than other promotions and, and other styles of wrestling in Europe and WWE and Japan. Um, it's much more common for people to not be happy in their company and never really be around long enough to be considered a true ace, a true face of the company. And Mystico was a very specific situation that um, I'm not sure how we're going to get there again, because even someone like Dragon Lee that everyone thinks you know, you see him in Japan, you see him in these great matches with Hiromu Takahashi, Kamatachi. Uh, you think, wow, this guy could be the top star. But in actuality, if you look at his year this year, he's done basically very, very little in CML to even be noteworthy. And that's how they do a lot of their guys these days and how they have for a long time now,
2: you know? If you think about is like, like actually worse than WWE yeah. when it comes to like making the brand the draw. And making guys yeah. not feel important, and that's something WWE gets killed for. But look at a young, bright star like Dragon Lee, athletic, good look, um, very marketable, obviously. And you give him the Anniversary of main event in 2016, and then how do you go the whole 2017 with doing nothing of other- it? Like that's yeah. kind of crazy.
3: I know it really is just not logical at all. And they don't even think about that. They think more about... Like I said, nowadays they've started to really focus more of their business on tourist attractions, which is why someone like Sam Adonis uh, gets pushed, a, a foreigner, more than a lot of other people that you would think is so, way more deserving. Someone like Dragon Lee. soverano I remember earlier this year on my, my show that I do, the Lucha show that I do, I was talking to Rob Viper, who's a... I think he was a guest on uh, your show, too, the one that I was on for the Lucha show. Mm-hmm. Um but um, I was talking to him about it and I said something like and this was around the time June or July came up. They were main eventing a show. Their big show main event was Pierroth versus Vangelis, you know, come on. <laughs> so I was saying how like I was trying to talk myself out of Pierroth, possibly main eventing the anniversario, which would have been a horrible travesty in so many ways. I was tr- and I was said something like, Whoa, Silverano, he's had the most amazing year of anyone. Like, what if they put him and Sansone in the main event? Like, like, let's just do it. Let's just go all the way. And Ron laughed at me and said that would never happen. And he was totally right. Yeah, well, he's right. <laughs> yeah, he's completely right. But, like, I think it would be so much better if they thought like that instead of how they do things. And in CML's defense, and this is not actually a defense. It's also another criticism that kind of uh, leads to this. But... In CML and Lucha Libre as a general's defense, especially for the last you know, 30, 40 years, the title belts mean so little. And that's yeah. something that, and every other form of wrestling, is always the main thing. Like I said, the champion is like the main person in a lot of ways to many people. But in Lucha Libre, the title belts don't mean crap. You do, it doesn't mean anything if you're a champion. Anybody could be a champion, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you're a star. And has nothing to do with anything. The mask match is the biggest match you can have, and the hair match is closely second. And the only way you can get to those is with a long-term feud. So those two things need to be built up, and they've just lost their way with this tourist attraction. They, they can't really do that um, with how they book their shows these days. But uh, hopefully it changes at some point in the future. Because things used to be a lot better. Uh, not a lot better, but definitely better than they are now. When you look at something like, um, something like there was a, this big feud with Saitanico and Ultimo Guerrero and Ray Bucanero that led. To this um, big, it was a totally a years long storyline that led to a big cage match with all of the Infernales and the nuevos Infernales and. It's something that they that I can't even imagine being done in this day and age with how CMLO books and AAA is pretty much just as bad <laughs> most of the time. Their titles don't their titles mean more in AAA because they're more Americanized to to be perfectly honest with you. But their booking is just so out there and random. It's hard to really get behind anybody that's not already you know that that hasn't already set their foot in a main event because it seems like if you can't get through that. There's a definite glass ceiling, and like you said, with CML and AAA, but especially CML, the brand is the draw on Lucha more than anything, and that's why a lot of these guys jump from promotion to, to promotion so much and go into the indies like L.A. Park. He could be a main eventer if he went to CML, but he'd rather be in the indies because he doesn't have to deal with their craziness and their bad booking. He can do what he wants, and I, I think that's a big problem when you look at Lucha. Uh, and for all of those reasons, I think that's why American fans that are jaded with their product turn to something more familiar and something that they uh, can understand a little bit better than Lucha, which is a uh, its own little world, pretty much.
2: No, just personally, oh. as a viewer, what, do, what would you say you prefer when it comes to booking and how you treat a main event scene? Do you prefer that everyone gets a turn booking style? Do you prefer a few, like, steady acts leading the way? Are you more for something in the middle? Like, where do you stand on that kind of stuff?
3: Well, Quinn, uh, I'll tell you, I touched on it a bit earlier, but I think that three or four consistently top stars, like the Four Pillars of, of Heaven, are a perfect example of what I want. And Misawa's always, like uh, to me, like the prototypical ace in a lot of ways. And how they booked him is exactly how you can and should book an ace. And he had all the potential and all the talent, obviously, to make it work. But with those three or four top stars, they were able to be consistently at the top for all of those years and for almost a decade. To me, it's also important, though, that sometimes, like I said, there should be somebody that pops up every now and then to either dethrone the ace and give the ace something to conquer, you know, because I think an ace that always wins forever and is the greatest of all time, no matter what, uh, can definitely get a little tiring. I think Okada has had that issue a little bit this year. They kind of uh, subverted that a bit at the end of the G1, but if you look at it, they really went out of their way to make him, which I think is a great idea. They had him wrestle opponents of all different styles, whether it was Konebushi as Tiger mess W, Minoru Suzuki, Shibata, Omega, all these different styles to prove that he could beat them all. And I think that was really smart. And but for over six years of the company being in the hands, of, the title being in the hands of Okada and Tanahashi, and occasionally AJ Styles, I think you could do. I think it would benefit everyone if you had a little bit uh, more unpredictability in terms of just having someone rise through the ranks. And like I mentioned, the hope for that is what I just said. But it can also give fans hope if you're a fan of an undercarder or a midcarder. That maybe they can rise up, you know. Even if they don't right away, you could look at someone that did it, and you could attach your hopes to that person that you like the best. And I think if you just have the same guy as champion all the time in the main event, that that doesn't do. That's not the best kind of booking, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. what I'm basically mm-hmm. saying is, I really love the the '90s All Japan booking because <laughs> they they pretty much did exactly what I would have wanted to do. They had your four pillars, and occasionally someone like Stan Hansen uh, would come up and would get the title, or Dr. Death, or someone like that. And they made sure to have those guys come up every now and then. Not not often, or all the time, but they would give them title rights, or Vader at the very end. Uh, so I, I, I really like that style of booking the best. I think All Japan in the 90s, best book promotion that I, I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, probably be probably. going to agree with you on all of that. I think that unpredictability is good but i guess like you know too much of it you know kind exactly. of ruins everything that you have going for you know actually building something up and what i do think is that you can have you know your set four or five guys that you have in rotation as the clear axe and then gradually you can build somebody up and this is something that new mm-hmm. japan i thought got unfairly killed for a uh, for a lot of the time is that it, you would say Okada's oh the only one being focused on Tanahashi Nakamura, and then you do have Naito Energy. And it's not, you know, they didn't work out initially, but they did try to give the guy a big push. It just did not work out the first time. And it worked out the second go around, but yeah, they did try. Um Before he left, Finn Balor, Prince Devitt, was going to be a very big deal. Probably was going to win the IWGP title, but he left and... You can't say they didn't try to make a star. AJ Styles came in, didn't do well, um, on his first big show, but as time went on, AJ Styles grew into a legitimate draw. And now with Kenny Omega, like you, you are seeing that they have transitioned him into being a legitimate star. Um, Katsuya Shibata, um, barring that horrific injury that happened, it seemed clear like they were like positioning him to be a much bigger deal. Um, the Sakura Genesis show doing such a fantastic number and the crowd reaction for him during that match oh, showed oh, that Kashiri Shibata was being elevated too. So I've given multiple different situations of New Japan elevating people, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it just sometimes forces beyond their control that just didn't think, just didn't work out. And I do think that you do need that like, you know, underdog story that everybody can get behind. But where do you, um, I guess, draw the line there? Do you think it's better to give the fans hope and then, like you know, take it away from them? Do you think it's better to like give them the moment? Like, where do you draw?
3: Where do you draw the line on that? Um, I think you have to give them hope. Uh, Obviously, I I think that's very important. And like I said, I do think you should give them the moment uh, occasionally. Like I said, I think the three or four main guys should be the main stars and have the belt a majority of the time, but I do think all of those names you mentioned, none of them won the title, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately. And that could lead to someone saying, if you were a fan of those guys, uh, at that point, obviously Naito is very very likely to get his moment, and it's, it's well-deserved, it's been a really well-done uh, ultimately, whether you like Okada or think he's stale or what, this has led to the perfect scenario for him to move mm-hmm. on, and uh, sort of, and pass it on to the proper recipient. And I think if you gave someone a moment every now and then of an, it doesn't have to necessarily be an underdog. I mean, obviously everyone's kind of an underdog compared to Okada and Naito and Omega at this moment, because like I said earlier, uh, I really don't see any scenario where anyone besides Okada and Naito, and possibly Omega, and even him, I'm, I'm not really super high on. But I, I can't see any I, I, any process, you know, possible future in 2018 where anyone besides them wins the title.
2: I mean, I'll be, I mean, I'll be honest. I think what happens think, is yeah. Naito beats Okada, and then Kenny Omega beats yeah. Naito, and then
3: I think the G1 finals probably Okada Naito. Yeah, exactly, and that, that's what I'm saying. I think you need to have the hope that that there's more people that, even if it's unlikely, I think you should have create something where you could say, well, maybe this guy could step up. Uh, you know, I think you need a, a solid under. I don't want to mean undercard, but undercurrent, besides um, and, you the know, top. Under, like underneath, like there's like an underlying story. Yeah, like like an, like yeah, like exactly, like some a few upper mid carders that you know could say in theory, well, maybe they could do it. And I think the Omega push was really the first sign of that. And that's something I will give them credit for because he did win the G1. Uh, he didn't win the title, but he won the G1. Nobody expected it when it happened. And I think that gives that gave people more hope this year in 2017 that maybe Naito wouldn't win. Maybe it would be someone else. Or, because, even, when,
2: uh, or even when Okada fa- like finally faces Shibata in a big match that people have been like clamoring for. So you hear the crowd reaction from Shibata. You see how dominant he is during the match. You believe like, oh my god. Kaiser Bottom might actually,
3: yep, totally. I, I think that I think they totally handled him uh, in a really good way for the fans. And if he hadn't have had his injury and he was in the G One, I think he would have been right up there. People would have been debating if he could win because of that, because of that booking. So uh, I do think that I do wish in New Japan's case someone would get the title just to break up Okada and Tanahashi having the title so long and now bringing into this, but. I do think that having Omega win the G1, just someone d- different and unexpected with the G1, was really good enough, too, uh, when, when I look at it. And I think if they do that every once in a while, that's almost as good as a, t- a title win in many ways. But I, I, I personally would like to see something where there is a few more guys. There are a few more guys that have hope of jumping up to being le- the leader of the company, which I don't think there really is right now in, in New Japan. I think those three guys that we made, I could totally see your scenario happening. And I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but I just don't think there's any way in that, that it doesn't happen in, where those three are not the champion in some way. And I don't think that's a good thing.
2: Um, You did say that all Japan in the nineties was like your model for like how you would want wrestling to be booked and um centered around top guys and, you know, putting in people now and now and then do you think there's a current promotion that like, doesn't exactly do that? But does it a sweet spot for you and how they handle their main event? I think it's also
3: worth noting before I I, I, I get into that. I think it's also worth noting a big reason why they were able to have these guys come up and break up the monotony of the four pillars sometimes was because when the four pillars weren't at the top champions, they were able to still be main eventers as a tag team. And there's absolutely no hope of that in New Japan right now because Mm -hmm. the tag teams in New Japan are very, very bad. Uh, the tag division, division, and obviously the main stars never really do anything like that. So and to that's the, to, I- and to
2: be fair. Historically, New Japan yeah. was never a tag team promotion either. So when they True. do, so when they do go for um, the tag team stuff, it really was like big special attraction kind of things. When you saw, you know, your Hashimoto's and all these guys in these tag matches, and you get it even less and less now with now in the era of um, Tanahashi, Okada, and Naito. But yeah, those tag matches and those six man tags were a very big part. in you know, all Japan booking, you know, just, you know, keep, g- keeps going and going and going. And even if it's just the same guys, it does give them more life. You know, if you did book Okada and, you know, just let's just say the stable, let's just say the stable lines aren't drawn that way. And you do have Okada and Naito against Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kenny Omega. Like that breeds a lot of life and, um, and, and like, interest in what is going on in your show rather than just having like rematch singles matches. And
3: it helps the tag division have mm-hmm. more prestige on top of it. So it's doubly big on that. But in terms of Pure Ace, hmm, when it comes to other promotions, I don't really think there's any promotion that's like that right now. I think the closest thing we have in a male promotion would be how Big Japan has, has done it when it comes to people like Sekimoto Okabayashi, as their main two guys, and occasionally they'll bring it, and this Hideki Suzuki run they're on is one of my favorite things in wrestling, but they tried to have the thing with Kamatani that really kind of failed pretty bad, in all honesty. Um, Unfortunately, it did, but they've kind of taken that model of having a few strong guys, a couple of strong guys. They could do to have a you know a couple more and it's really hurt them that they don't but i really like the model that they have i think if they had better people surrounding suzuki and sekimoto and okabayashi it would be a lot better um my favorite book promotion in japan and it's funny because you would this is a totally left field pick for a lot of people but when i watch them i always think that they have despite this person's limitation as an ace they've totally made the best of it and it's a Joshi promotion called Ice Ribbon. And their main ace is called Risa Sarah. And a lot of people don't like her because she's not that good of a wrestler, in all honesty. But she carries herself well and fits the role of ace that they wanted. What the Ice Ribbon fans want out of an ace. And every match on a given show means something. And it leads up to her title matches, which has been great in a lot of ways. Her title matches have delivered above her head, and it's a lot of that is because of how well they booked the promotion. And with her, Tsukasa Fujimoto, and uh, formerly Tsukushi, who had an unfortunate incident this year that probably ended her career, but they, they really have a similar booking model that you wouldn't expect out of a Joshi company. I think they get really underrated in a lot of ways. But between that and Big Japan, I think those are the companies that do it really well. And I think Noah. Uh, they've, they're they on their way. It's just they've struggled so much these past couple of years. They got caught up with that Suzuki run, which was just so uh, horrible. And I don't mean Suzuki gun. I mean Suzuki goon as a run. But there's a lot of people mispronounce that. But that run was just so bad that it kind of messed everything up. And they're just now trying to get back away from that. And I think maybe in a year or two time, I think Noah you can look at as a promotion that they have the seeds planted and the foundation for a great lead book promotion, but they're just not there yet, in my opinion.
2: Uh, one promotion that I really think, um, over the years has done a great job of having like clear, like important guys while also not being afraid to throw in a wacky title right here and then is obviously a DDT. Um, yeah. Hiroshima, Kota Ibushi, Kudo, sometimes Kenny Omega, um, Sashiro Takagi, like, those mm-hmm. are guys that are, like were always important, and Takaki has de-emphasized himself, so he's not winning the title. But, you know, those were important guys, and they would not be afraid to mix it up and have something else going on. You know, give, okay. giving a Masa Takanashi a little title reign, or putting a belt on a Daisuke Sekimoto or a Shuji Ishikawa. Uh, they weren't afraid to do that. And now they're transitioning more into Kanesuke Takashita, um, somewhat Daisuke Sasaki, uh, to Suya Endo, being guys that are always going to be in the mix because they're super popular, they they can go in the ring, and at any given moment you can just put the belt on them and you're not going to miss a beat. WXW the last few years, um, they can be kind of wacky too sometimes because sometimes they do like tourist events like 16 Carat or whatever where it's not super storyline focused and there'll be a lot of uh, imports coming in for the tournament and it won't make. And it won't be too important in canon, so to speak. But like yeah. your guys like Walter, your um, Bad Bones John Klinger, your absolute Andes, now you Your Simmons, your Ilya Dragonovs, those are your mainstay guys that you know are always gonna be around. Um, especially Walter for the last, you know, decade or so is always gonna be, you know, like the man leading the ship known as WXW. But totally. all those guys are reliable you understand them they've been there forever they're still young and wxw can still rely on them to um, carry their main title and even when they're not carrying the main title they can be in important programs on shotgun tv and help elevate new stars absolute andy even if he's not a title, a title challenger for the unified title anymore working with Mari salani and the tag team and elevating him and now setting up for a big singles program against alani you know, that's the best use of a top player if you're not gonna put the belt on them. And Yarn Simmons has been doing similar stuff too. So yeah, I think those two companies are probably like my example. The kind of booking I'm into where you can kinda of like de push a guy, so to speak, but it doesn't mm-hmm. look but it doesn't seem like they're losing credibility because they're like rubbing it
3: off on other people. Yeah, and I think Walter is a great uh, great point. And I, I totally agree with you about WSW in particular. I completely agree with you. Walter is someone that's very similar to someone like Daisuke Sakamoto or Okabayashi in Big Japan and that he could be the champion or he could be a great and awesome tag team champion at any moment if you want to deport him in his teams with Axel Dieter Jr., which had, he was a great team, and now with Timothy Thatcher, which is just a tremendous team. We were talking off-air about how awesome we both think they are. Uh, he's someone that really represents well, and they, like you said, they book it up and down. Someone like Dragunov is a, a, such a great and likable character and wrestler that uh, they've done such an amazing job with up and down. that uh, I definitely think WXW is right up there as one of the top booked promotions in the world. And DET totally is a company that knows their fan base well. That's another case of a, 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 t- a company that knows their fan base so well. And I think that helps their booking tremendously. I will say one of my favorite random DDT title reigns was when Isami Kodaka got the yeah. title. <laughs> that was a good he, one. Yeah, yeah, he had an awesome title reign. It only lasted like three months or so, but it was uh, so cool to see him doing it. Uh, Hiroshima, definitely a, a true definition of an ace, to bring it back to the promotion of the show. So DDT, I think you could definitely make the case that it's such a well-booked company uh, up and down the, the card through the years. And they know their audience so well, and I think that's such an important part of great booking.
2: And I think we've hit every single thing that we could have possibly wanted to hit on this episode. So I want to thank you, Dylan, uh, for your time and spending a little over two hours with me. I think this is actually one of the shorter episodes of Psychology is Dead. So I'm getting better and not going four hours every single time. But, um, really thank you very much, um, for this like little, um, pit stop before we get into the top 100 season. So, uh, to, to unplug your Twitter, your shows. Anything else you need to say?
3: Go ahead, man. Yeah, Quentin. Listen, I've got I've got a whole list of more aces. If you want to talk about it, we can go. <laughs> we can. If you want, uh, we didn't even get into the shoot style and the Joshi <laughs> aces that much. Oh yeah, we could,
2: but, could easily do a, like an entire part on like yeah. shoot style and how aces and all that can actually go into MMA and
3: boxing. But that's a completely different show. Yeah, or we we could just do a whole show on Akira Maeda and all of the crazy things he's done in his career <laughs> That yeah, is that as well. that also true. Yeah, it would probably go for a whole uh, three times as long as any other (laughs) other show you've ever done. (laughs) But, yeah, if you like the show, I, I, first of all, I really want to thank you too, Quinn, for inviting me on, picking me for this show. I really enjoyed it, and I hope I can come on again for something in the future as well. I hope everybody enjoyed listening to it. As far as my Twitter, you can check me out, at Sky. Just spell out the word zero, too. It's not a number. But you can check me out on there. I'll talk to you about anything. I really watch all types of wrestling that I can. Uh, I mentioned before that um, I-, I love wrestling so much, and I have such a passion for it. It really is my life, whether it's Japan, Lucha, or American Style, or WXW. I'm a huge fan of, too. I've started watching a little bit more. So check me out on there. I am a host on the MLW Radio Network as well. I have two shows. The first of which is Lucha Talk, which obviously we talk about lucha. I don't. I don't know if you guys could pick that out, uh, Quentin. But sure, it's on a you know, TV podcast. TV podcast. Uh, you know that was the d- original direction, but I had to call it call it off. <laughs> you know? are, you, are you guys going to talk about era lucha on there? Yeah, we we actually talked about it a little bit, but uh, you know it's funny because I'm from Tennessee, so I could have gone to Ara Lucha. <laughs> I, I actually live, uh, 50, I probably live an hour away from Ara Lucha where it took place, but I did not go. I uh, you know it's one of those things I just I just couldn't make it. I could not support Vince Russo in, in his pro- project. I could not will myself to do that. But yeah, me and my friend Alfredo Esparza, who runs Lucha World and Microman Fever, uh, Raúl Rodriguez. He has a Tumblr page, and is a great Spanish translator for Lucha Libre. He helps a lot of people that are fans understand promos and interviews and things like that. It's a great show, too. Uh, we're going to have a year-end review show probably up uh, for uh, 2017, and talking about some stuff for 2018, obviously. And my other show is the Eastern Lariat podcast, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Me and my other friend, Striga, who runs CageMatch.net. He says he doesn't run it, but he secretly runs it. Don't worry. Uh, I, I don't know. I actually don't know if he runs it, to be honest with you, because I know there's some other people involved. But yeah. anyway, he, he's he's a big person at cagematch.net. He's very important, very influential, very popular. He always big ties me on the podcast, too. If you listen, you'll notice that as well. But we do a lot of great stuff together. I really love doing that show, honestly. We'll have another show. I don't know if it'll be a traditional year in review, but we're going to be doing something for sure. When it comes to uh, that, and the Tokyo Sports Awards, we'll be talking about. And if you ever want to talk about anything about Japanese wrestling, really seek both of us out because we're—he's such a great resource on Twitter, and we'll be doing that. I think we'll be doing a show right after the January Fourth show too, as well. If you're a fan of New Japan, really check us out there. But um, I think that's about it for now. Uh, I, I have a few other things that I'm working on, but I, I, I'm not quite ready to. End-
2: and you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. i been—I've been on. PW for about a year now over a year now so if you're not following me I have no idea but
1: <laughs>
2: you should go listen to the top 50 wrestlers wrestlers of the year um podcast um I guess it would be a series since it was more than one but with uh Timothy from Lucha Undead and This Week in Wrestling uh some controversy maybe we actually got some feedback from Travis Banks um based on the discussion that we had on um on him on the show okay. that was um very fun but those are like hard Twitter exchange um, shout out to Travis very very nice dude but that's awesome yeah go listen to that go listen to those I will be doing the top 100 matches of 2017 with Brock so if you're disappointed that this was a short podcast by any means me and Brock will more than likely be going like three and a half hours on every single one of those shows so if you're not sick of my voice already um bye then be on the lookout for those Thank you all for listening. We'll be here next time. The
1: daylight, <laughs> until the day break in the moonlight. Only listen to Mr. Giggles and reminiscences. The remedy trickles slowly down the aisle of my soul. Hold me like it only tomorrow. Show me from the you morning. I'll be everything good. That's what. Just you and me, babe. Say it with me, babe. Sip like my shaka papa Sip like the nether waves Your entity babe My remedy babe Sip like you wanna give figure With this what you waiting on Superlose keep oh, on Sip like the it just Me yeah I was the boo-boo It just like it's like the group. So it, it tried mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was a just mm-hmm. 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 like this time be with you I'd rather be with you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.